BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Chapter 19 of The Three Just Men by Edgar Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain at Heavy Tree Farm. It had been agreed that, having failed in their attack, and their energies for the moment being directed to Rath Hall, an immediate return of the old guard to Heavy Tree Farm was unlikely. This had been Meadows' view, and Leon and his friend were of the same mind. Only Poicart, that master strategist, working surely with a clear knowledge of his enemy's psychology, had demurred from this reasoning but as he had not insisted upon his point of view, Heavy Tree Farm and its occupants had been left to the care of the local police and the shaken Digby. Aunt Alma offered to give up her room to the wounded man, but he would not hear of this, and took the spare bedroom, an excellent position for a defender, since it separated Mirabel's apartment from the pretty little room which Aunt Alma used as a study and sleeping place. The staff of Heavy Tree Farm consisted of an ancient cowman, a cook and a maid, the latter of whom had already given notice and left on the afternoon of the attack. She had, as she told Mirabelle in all seriousness, a weak heart. "'And a weak head, too,' snapped Alma. "'I should not worry about your heart, my girl, if I were you.' "'I was top of my class at school,' bridled the maid, touched to the raw by this reflection upon her intelligence. "'It must have been a pretty small class,' retorted Alma. A new maid had been found, a girl who had been thrilled by the likelihood that the humdrum of daily labor would be relieved by exciting events out of the ordinary, and before evening the household had settled down to normality. Mirabel was feeling the reaction and went to bed early that night, waking as the first slant of sunlight poured through her window. She got up, feeling she told herself as well as she had felt in her life. Pulling back the chintz curtains, she looked out upon a still world with a sense of happiness and relief beyond measure. There was nobody in sight. Pools of mist lay in the hollows, and from one white farmstead, far away on the slope of the hill, she saw the blue smoke was rising. It was a morning to remember, and to catch its spirit the better, she dressed hastily and went down into the garden. As she walked along the path, she heard a window pulled open, and the bandaged head of Mr. Digby appeared. "'Oh, it's you, is it, miss?' he said with relief, and she laughed. "'There is nothing more terrible in sight than a big spider,' she said, and pointed to a big flat fellow who was already spinning his web between the tall hollyhocks, and the first of the bees was abroad. "'If anybody had come last night, I shouldn't have heard them,' he confessed. "'I slept like a dead man.' He touched his head gingerly. "'It smarts, but the ache is gone,' he said, not loth to discuss his infirmities.' 
The doctor said I had a narrow escape. He thought there was a fracture. Would you like me to make you some tea, miss, or shall I call the servant? She shook her head, but he had already disappeared, and came seeking her in the garden ten minutes later with a cup of tea in his hand. He told her for the second time that he was a police pensioner and had been in the employ of Gonzales for three years. The three paid well, and had, she learned to her surprise, considerable private resources. Does it pay them, this private detective business? Lord bless your heart, no miss, he scoffed at the idea. They are very rich men. I thought everybody knew that. They say Mr. Gonzales was worth a million even before the war. This was astonishing news. But why did they do this, she hesitated, this sort of thing? It is a hobby, miss, said the man vaguely. Some people run racehorses, some own yachts. These gentlemen get a lot of pleasure out of their work and they pay well, he added. Men in the regular employ of the three just men not only received a good wage, but frequently a bonus which could only be described as colossal. Once, after they had rounded up and destroyed a gang of Spanish bank robbers, they had distributed a thousand pounds to every man who was actively employed. He hinted rather than stated that this money had formed part of the loot which the three had recovered, and did not seem to think that there was anything improper in this distribution of illicit gains. After all, miss, he said philosophically, when you collect money like that, it's impossible to give it back to the people it came from. This Diego had been holding up banks for years, and banks are not like people. They don't feel the loss of money. That's a thoroughly immoral view, said Mirabel, intent upon her flower-picking. It may be, miss, agreed Digby, who had evidently been one of the recipients of bounty, and took a complacent and tolerant view. But a thousand pounds is a lot of money. The day passed without event. From the early evening papers that came from Gloucester, she learned of the fire at Aubergine's, and did not connect the disaster with anything but an accident. She was not sorry. The fire had licked out one ugly chapter from the past. Incidentally, it had destroyed a crude painting which was, to Dr. Aubergine, more precious than any that Leonardo had painted or Raphael conceived, but this she did not know. It was just before the dinner hour that there came the first unusual incident of the day. Mirabel was standing by the garden gate, intent upon the glories of the evening sky, which was piled high with red and slate-colored cumuli. The glass was falling and a wet night was promised, but the loveliness of that lavish coloring held her, and then she became dimly aware that a man was coming towards the house from the direction of Gloucester. He walked in the middle of the road slowly, as though he too were admiring the view and there was no need to hurry. His hands were behind him, his soft felt hat at the back of his head. A stocky-looking man, but his face was curiously familiar. He turned his unsmiling eyes in her direction, and looking again at his strong features, at the tiny grey-black moustache under his aquiline nose, she was certain she had seen him before. Perhaps she had passed him in the street, and had retained a subconscious mental picture of him. He slowed his step until, when he came abreast of her, he stopped. "'This is Heavy Tree Lane?' he asked in a deep, musical voice. "'No, the lane is the first break in the hedge,' she smiled. "'I'm afraid it isn't much of a road. Generally it's ankle-deep in mud.' He looked past her to the house. His eyes ranged the windows, dropped for a moment upon a climbing clematis, and came back to her. I don't know Gloucestershire very well, he said, and added, You have a very nice house. Yes, she said in surprise. And a garden. And then, innocently, D 
Do you grow onions? She stared at him and laughed. I think we do. I am not sure. My aunt looks after the kitchen garden. His sad eyes wandered over the house again. It is a very nice place, he said, and lifting his hat, went on. Digby was out. He had gone for a gentle walk, and looking up the road after the stranger, she saw the guard appear round a bend in the road, saw him stop and speak to the stranger. Apparently they knew one another, for they shook hands at meeting, and after a while Digby pointed down the road to where she was standing, and she saw the man nod. Soon after the stranger went out of view, who could he be? Was it an additional guard that the three men had put to protect her? When Digby came up to her, she asked him, "'That gentleman, miss? He is Mr. Poircart.' "'Poircart,' she said, delighted. "'Oh, I wish I had known.' "'I was surprised to see him,' said the guard. "'As a matter of fact, he's one of the three gentlemen I've met the most. "'He's generally in Curzon Street, even when the others are away.' Digby had nothing to say about Poircart except that he was a very quiet gentleman and took no active part in the operations of the just men. "'I wonder why he wanted to know about onions,' asked the girl thoughtfully. "'That sounded awfully mysterious.' "'It would not have been so mysterious to Leon.' The house retired to bed soon after ten, Alma going the rounds and examining the new bolts and locks which had been attached that morning to every door which gave ingress to the house. Mirabel was unaccountably tired, and was asleep almost as soon as her head touched the pillow. She heard in her dreams the swish of the rain beating against her window, lay for a long time trying to energize herself to rise and shut the one open window where the curtains were blowing in. Then came a heavier patter against the closed pane, and something rattled on the floor of her room. She sat up. It could not be hail, although there was a rumble of thunder in the distance. She got out of bed, pulled on her dressing gown, went to the window, and had all her work to stifle a scream. Somebody was standing on the path below. A woman. She leaned out. "'Who is it?' she asked. "'It is me. I, Joan.' There was a sob in the voice of the girl. Even in that light, Mirabel could see that the girl was drenched. "'Don't wake anybody. Come down. I want you.' "'What is wrong?' asked Mirabel in a low voice. "'Everything. Everything.' She was on the verge of hysteria. Mirabel lit a candle and crossed the room, went downstairs softly, so that Alma should not be disturbed. Putting the candle on the table, she unbarred and unbolted the door, opened it, and as she did so a man slipped through the half-open door, his big hand smothering the screen that rose to her lips. Another man followed and, lifting the struggling girl, carried her into the drawing-room. One of the men took a small iron bottle from his pocket, to which ran a flexible rubber tube ending in a large red cap. Her captor removed his hands just as long as it took to fix the cap over her face. A tiny faucet was turned. Mirabel felt a puff on her face, a strangely sweet taste, and then her heart began to beat thunderously. She thought she was dying, and writhed desperately to free herself. "'She's all right,' said Monty Newton, lifting an eyelid for a second. "'Get a blanket.' He turned fiercely to the whimpering girl behind him. "'Shut up, you!' he said savagely. "'Do you want to rouse the whole house?' A woebegone Joan was whimpering softly tears running down her face, her hands clasping and unclasping in the agony of her mind. "'You told me you weren't going to hurt her,' she sobbed. "'Get out,' he hissed, and pointed to the door. She went meekly. 
A heavy blanket was wrapped round the unconscious girl, and lifting her between them, the two men went out into the rain, where the old trolley was waiting, and slid her along the straw-covered floor. In another second the trolley moved off, gathering speed. By this time the effect of the gas had worn off and Mirabel had regained consciousness. She put out a hand and touched a woman's knee. "'Who is that, Alma?' "'No,' said a miserable voice. "'It's Joan.' "'Joan? Oh, yes, of course. Why did you do it? How wicked!' "'Shut up,' Monty snarled. "'Wait until you get to where you're going, before you start these whys and wherefores.' Mirabel was deathly sick and bemused, and for the next hour she felt too ill to feel even alarm. Her head was going round and round, and ate terribly, and the jolting of the truck did not improve matters in this respect. Monty, who was sitting with his back to the truck's side, was smoking. He cursed now and then, and some unusually heavy jolt flung him forward. They passed through the heart of the storm. The flicker of lightning was almost incessant, and the thunder was deafening. Rain was streaming down the hood of the trolley, rendering it like a drum. Mirabel fell into a little sleep and woke feeling better. It was still dark, and she would not have known the direction they were taking, only the driver took the wrong turning coming through a country town, and by the help of the lightning she saw what was indubitably the stand of a racetrack, and a little later saw the word Newbury. They were going towards London, she realized. At this hour of the morning there was little or no traffic, and when they turned on to the new Great West Road, a big car went whizzing past at seventy miles an hour, and the roar of it woke the girl. Now she could feel the trolley wheels skidding on tram lines. Lights appeared with greater frequency. She saw a store window brilliantly illuminated, the night watchman having evidently forgotten to turn off the lights at the appointed hour. Soon they were crossing the Thames. She saw the red and green lights of a tug, and black upon near black a string of barges in midstream. She dozed again and was jerked wide awake when the trolley swayed and skidded over a surface more uneven than any. Once its wheels went into a pothole and she was flung violently against the side. Another time it skidded and was brought up with a crash against some obstacle. The bumping grew more gentle, and then the machine stopped. Monty jumped down and called to her sharply. Her head was clear now, despite its throbbing. She saw a queer-shaped house, all gables and turrets, extraordinarily narrow for its height. It seemed to stand in the middle of a field. And yet it was in London. She could see the glow of furnace fires and hear the deep boom of a ship's siren as it made its way down the river on the tide. She had not time to take observations, for Monty fastened to her arm, and she squelched through the mud up a flight of stone steps into a dimly lit hall. She had a confused idea that she had seen little dogs standing on the side of the steps and a big bird with a long bill, but these probably belonged to the smoke of dreams which the gas had left. Monty opened a door and pushed her in before him, and she stared into the face of Dr. Aubergeon. He wore a black velvet dressing gown that had once been a regal garment, but was now greasy and stained. On his egg-shaped head he had an embroidered smoking cap. His feet were encased in warm velvet slippers. He put down the book he had been reading, rubbed his glasses on one velvet sleeve, and then, So, he said. He pointed to the remains of a fire. Sit down, Mirabel Lester, and warm yourself. You have come quickly, my friend, he addressed Monty. I'm black and blue all over, growled Newton. Why couldn't we have a car? Because the cars were engaged, as I told you. Did you, began Newton quickly, 
but the old man glanced significantly at the girl, shivering before the fire and warming her hands mechanically. I will answer, but you need not ask. In good time. This is not of all moments the most propitious. Where is your woman? He had forgotten Joan and went out to find her shivering in the passage. Do you want her? he asked, poking his head in the door. She shall go with this girl. You will explain. Where are you going to put her? Aubergine pointed to the floor. Here? But... No, no. My friend, you are too quick to see what is not meant. The gracious lady shall live in a palace. I have a certain friend who will no longer need it. His face twitched in the nearest he ever approached to a smile. Groping under the table, he produced a pair of muddy wellingtons, kicked off his slippers, and pulled on the boots with many gasps and jerks. All that they need is there. I have seen to it. March. He led the way out of the room, pulling the girl to her feet, and Newton followed, Joan bringing up the rear. Inside the factory, Aubergine produced a small hand-torch from his pocket and guided them through the debris till he came to that part of the floor where the trap was. With his foot he moved the covering of rubbish, pulled up the trap, and went down. "'I can't go down there, Monty. I can't,' said Joan's agitated voice. "'What are you going to do with this? My God, if I'd known!' "'Don't be a fool,' said Newton roughly. "'What have you got to be afraid of? There's nothing here.' We want you to look after her for a day or two. You don't want her to go down by herself. She'd be frightened to death. Her teeth chattering, Joan stumbled down the steps behind him. Certainly the first view of her new quarters was reassuring. Two little trestle beds had been made, the underground room had been swept clean, and a new carpet laid on the floor. Moreover, the apartment was brilliantly lit, and a furnace gave almost an uncomfortable warmth which was nevertheless very welcome for the temperature had dropped twenty degrees since noon. In this box there were clothes of all varieties, and expensive to purchase, said Aubergine, pointing to a brand new trunk at the foot of one of the beds. Food you will have in plenty, bread and milk newly every day. By night you shall keep the curtain over the ventilator. On the wall was a small black curtain about ten inches square. Monty took her into the next apartment and showed her the wash place. There was even a bath a compulsory fixture under the English Factory Act in a store of this description, where in the old days men had to handle certain insanitary products of the coast. But how do we get out, Monty? Where do we get exercise? You'll come out tomorrow night. I'll see to that, he said, dropping his voice. Now listen, Joan. You've got to be a sensible girl and help me. There's money in this, bigger money than you have ever dreamed of. And when we've got this unpleasant business over, I'm taking you away for a trip round the world. It was the old promise given before, never fulfilled, always hoped for. But this time it did not wholly remove her uneasiness. But what are you going to do with the girl, she asked. Nothing. She will be kept here for a week. I'll swear to you that nothing will happen to her. At the end of a week she's to be released without a hair of her head being harmed. She looked at him searchingly. As far as she was able to judge, he was speaking the truth, and yet... I can't understand it, she shook her head, and for once Monty Newton was patient with her. She's the owner of a big property in Africa, and that we shall get if things work out right, he said. The point is that she must claim within a few days. If she doesn't, the property is ours. Her face cleared. Is that all? She believed him, knew him well enough to detect his rare sincerity. 
That's taken a load off my mind, Monty. Of course I'll stay and look after her for you. It makes it easier to know that nothing will happen. What are those base things behind the furnace? They look like boxes? He turned on her quickly. I was going to tell you about those, he said. You're not to touch them under any circumstances. They belong to the old man. He's very stuffy about such things. Leave them just as they are. Let him touch them and nobody else. Do you understand? She nodded and, to his surprise, pecked his cheek with her cold lips. I'll help you, boy, she said tremulously. Maybe that trip will come off after all, if... If what? Those men, the men you were talking about. The four just men, don't they call themselves? They scare me sick, Monty. They were the people who took her away before, and they'll kill us. Even Aubergine says that. They're after him. Has he... She hesitated. Has he killed anybody? That snake stuff. You're not in it, are you, Monty? She looked more like a child than a sophisticated woman, clinging to his arm, her blue eyes looking pleadingly into his. Stuff. What do I know about snakes? He disengaged himself and came back to where Aubergine was waiting, a figure of patience. The girl was lying on the bed, her face in the crook of her arm, and he was gazing at her, his expression inscrutable. That is all, then. Good night, gracious ladies. He turned and marched back towards the step and waved his hand. Monty followed. The girl heard the thud of the trap fall, the scrape of the old man's boots, and then a rumbling sound, which he did not immediately understand. Later, when in a panic she tried the trap, she found that a heavy barrel had been put on top, and that it was immovable. End of chapter 19《Chapter Twenty of the Three Just Men by Edgar Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Gerther Reports. Dr. Aubergine had not been to bed for thirty-five years. It was his practice to sleep in a chair and alternate his dozes with copious drafts from his favorite authors. Mostly the books were about the soul and free will and predestination, with an occasional dip into Nietzsche by way of light recreation. In ordinary circumstances he would have had need for all the philosophy he could master, for ruin had come. The destruction of his store, which to all intents and purposes was uninsured, would have been the crowning stroke of fate but for the golden vision ahead. Via, that handsome half-breed, had arrived in England and had been with the doctor all evening. At that moment he was on his way to Liverpool to catch the coast-boat and he had left with his master a record of the claims that had already been pegged out on Montadoro, as he so picturesquely renamed the new mountain. There were millions there, uncountable wealth, and between the hair-doctor and the achievement of this colossal fortune was a life which he had no immediate desire to take. The doctor was a bachelor. Women bored him. Yet he was prepared to take the extreme step if by doing so he could doubly ensure his fortune. Mirabel dead gave him one chance. Mirabel alive and persuaded multiplied that chance by a hundred. He opened the book he was reading at the last page and took out the folded paper. It was a special license to marry and had been duly registered at the Greenwich Registrar's office since the day before the girl had entered his employment. This was his second and most powerful weapon. He could have been legally married on this nearly a week ago. It was effective for two months at least, and only five days separated him from the necessity of a decision. If the time expired, Mirabel could live. It was quite a different matter, 
killing in cold blood a woman for whom the police would be searching, and with whose disappearance his name would be connected, from that other form of slaying he favored, the striking down of strange men in crowded thoroughfares. She was not for the snake, as yet. He folded the paper carefully, put it back in the book, and turned the page, when there was a gentle tap at the door, and he sat up. Come in, Pfeiffer. March. The door opened slowly, and a man sidled into the room, and at the sight of him Dr. Aubergeon gasped. Gerther, he stammered, for once thrown out of his stride. Gerther smiled and nodded, his round eyes fixed on the tassel of the Herr Doctor's smoking cap. You have returned, and failed? The American, I think, is dead, Herr Doctor, said the man in his staccato tone. The so excellent Pfeiffer is also dead. The doctor blinked twice. Dead? he said gratingly. Who told you this? I saw him. Something happened to the snake. Pfeiffer was bitten. The old man's hard eyes fixed him. So, he said softly. He died very quickly, in the usual manner, jerked Arthur, still with that stupid smile. So, said the doctor again. All then was a failure, and out of it comes an American who is nothing, and Pfeiffer who is much dead. God have him in his keeping, said Gerther, not lowering or raising his eyes. And all the way back I thought this, Herr Doctor, how much better that it should be Pfeiffer and not me, though my nerves are so bad. So, said the doctor for the fourth time, and held out his hand. Gerther slipped his fingers into his waistcoat pocket and took out a gold cigarette case. The doctor opened it and looked at the five cigarettes that reposed, at the two halves of the long holder, neatly lying in their proper place, closed the case with a snap and laid it on the table. "'What shall I do with you, Gerther? Tomorrow the police will come and search this house.' "'There is the cellar, Herr Doctor. It is very comfortable there. I would prefer it.' Dr. Aubergeon made a gesture like a boy wiping something from a slate. "'That is not possible. It is in occupation,' he said. I must find a new place for you. He stared and mused. There is the boat, he said. Gerther's smile did not fade. The boat was a small barge, which had been drawn up into the private dock of the ONS factory and had been rotting there for years, the playing ground of rats, the Doss house of the homeless. The doctor saw what was in the man's mind. It may be comfortable. I'll give you some gas to kill the rats, and it will only be for five, six days. Yeah, Herr Doctor. For tonight you may sleep in the kitchen. One does not expect... There was a thunderous knock on the outer door. The two men looked at one another, but still Gerther grinned. I think it is the police, said the doctor calmly. He got up to his feet, lifted the seat of a long, hard-looking sofa, disclosing a deep cavity, and Gerther slipped in, and the seat was replaced. This done, the doctor waddled to the door and turned the key. Good morning, Inspector Meadows. May I come in, said Meadows. Behind him were two police officers, one in uniform. Do you wish to see me? Certainly. They held the door cautiously open, and only Meadows came in and preceded the doctor into his study. I want Mirabel Lester, said Meadows curtly. She was abducted from her home in the early hours of this morning, and I have information that the car which took her away came to this house. There are tracks of wheels in the mud outside. If there are car tracks, they are mine, said the doctor calmly. He enumerated the makes of machines he possessed. There is another matter. 
as to cars having come here in the night i have a sense of hearing mr inspector meadows and i have heard many cars in hangman's lane but not in my ground also i'm sure you have not come to tell me of abducted girls but to disclose to me the mystery and to burnt my store that is what i expect of you what you expect of me and what you get will be entirely different propositions said meadows unpleasantly now come across aubergeon we know why you want this girl the whole plot has been blown you think you'll prevent her from making a claim on the portuguese government for the renewal of a concession granted in june nineteen twelve to her father if dr aubergeon was shocked to learn that a secret was out he did not show it by his face not a muscle moved of such matters i know nothing it is a fantasy a story of fairies yet it must be true mr inspector meadows if you say it no i think you are deceived by the criminals of curzon street west men of blood and murder with records that are infamous you desire to search my house it is your privilege he waved his hand i do not ask you for the ticket of search from basement to attic the house is yours he was not surprised when meadows took him at his word and going out into the hall summoned his assistants they visited each room separately the old cook and the half-witted danish girl accepting this visitation as a normal occurrence they had every excuse to do so for this was the second time in a fortnight that the house had been visited by the police now i'll take a look at your room if you don't mind said meadows his quick eyes caught sight of the box ottoman against the wall and the fact that the doctor was sitting thereon added to his suspicions i will look in here if you please he said aubergeon rose and the detective lifted the lid it was empty the ottoman had been placed against the wall at the bottom of which was a deep recess Gerther had long since rolled through the false back. "'You see? Nothing,' said Aubergeon. "'Now perhaps you would like to search my factory? Perhaps amongst the rafters and the burnt girders I may conceal the something, or the barge in my slipway? Who knows what I may place amongst the rats?' "'You're almost clever,' said Meadows, "'and I don't profess to be a match for you. But there are three men in this town who are. I'll be frank with you, Aubergeon.' I want to put you where I can give you a fair trial in accordance with the law of this country, and I shall resist to the best of my ability any man taking the law into his own hands. But whether you're innocent or guilty, I wouldn't stand in your shoes for all the money in Angola. So, said the doctor politely, give up this girl, and I rather fancy that half your danger will be at an end. I tell you, you're too clever for me. It's a stupid thing for a police officer to say, but I can't get at the bottom of your snake. They have. The old man's brows worked up and down. Indeed, he said blandly. And of which snake do you speak? Meadows said nothing more. He had given his warning. If Aubergeon did not profit thereby, he would be the loser. Nobody doubted, least of all he, that in defiance of all the laws that man had made, independent of all the machinery of justice that human ingenuity had devised, Inevitable punishment awaited Aubergeon and was near at hand. End of chapter 20。Chapter 21 of The Three Just Men by Edgar Wallace。This LibriVox recording is in the public domain。The Account Book。It was five o'clock in the morning when the mud-spattered spans dropped down through the mist and driving rain of the Chiltern Hills and struck the main Gloucester Road, 
pulling up with a jerk before Heavytree Farm. Manfred sprang out, but before he could reach the door, Aunt Alma had opened it, and by the look of her face he saw that she had not slept that night. "'Where is Digby?' he asked. "'He's gone to interview the chief constable,' said Alma. "'Come in, Mr. Gonzales.' Leon was wet from head to foot. There was not a dry square centimeter upon him. But he was his old cheerful self as he stamped into the hall, shaking himself free of his heavy Macintosh. Digby, of course, heard nothing, George. I'm the lightest sleeper in the world, said Aunt Alma, but I heard not a sound. The first thing I knew was when a policeman came up and knocked at my door and told me that he'd found the front door open. No clue was left at all? Yes, said Aunt Alma. They went into the drawing room and she took up from the table a small black bottle with a tube and cap attached. I found this behind the sofa. She'd been lying on the sofa, the cushions were thrown on the floor and she tore at the tapestry in her struggle. Leon turned the faucet and as the gas hissed out, sniffed. The new dental gas, he said. But how did they get in? No window was open or forced? They came in at the door. I'm sure of that. And they had a woman with them, said Aunt Alma proudly. How do you know? There must have been a woman, said Aunt Alma. Mirabel would not have opened the door except to a woman, without waking either myself or Mr. Digby. Leon nodded, his eyes gleaming. Obviously, he said. And I found the marks of a woman's foot in the passage. It is dried now, but you can still see it. I have already seen it, said Leon. It is to the left of the door, a small pointed shoe and a rubber heel. Miss Lester opened the door to the woman, the men came in, and the rest was easy. You can't blame Digby, he said appealingly to George. He was the friend at court of every agent, but this time Manfred did not argue with him. I blame myself, he said. Quackhart told me. He was here, said Aunt Elma. Who, Quackhart? asked Manfred, surprised, and Gonzales slapped his knee. "'That's it, of course. What fools we are! We ought to have known why this wily old fox had left his post. What time was he here?' Alma told him all the circumstances of the visit. "'He must have left the house immediately after us,' said Leon, with a wide grin of amusement. Caught the five o'clock train for Gloucester, taxied across. "'And after that?' suggested Manfred. Leon scratched his chin. I wonder if he's back. He took up the telephone and put a trunk call through to London. Somehow I don't think he is. Here's Digby, looking as if he expected to be summarily executed. The police pensioner was indeed in a mournful and pathetic mood. I don't know what you'll think of me, Mr. Manfred, he began. I've already expressed a view on that subject. George smiled faintly. I'm not blaming you, Digby. To leave a man who has been knocked about as you have been without an opposite number was the height of folly. I didn't expect them back so soon. As a matter of fact, I intended putting four men on from today. You've been making inquiries? Yes, sir. The car went through Gloucester very early in the morning and took the Swindon Road. It was seen by a cyclist policeman. He said there was a fat roll of tarpaulin lying on the tent of the trolley. No sign of anybody chasing it in a car or on a motor-bicycle? asked Manfred anxiously. Poicard had recently taken to motorcycling. No, sir. You saw Mr. Poicard? Yes, he was just going back to London. 
He said he wanted to see the place with his own eyes. George was disappointed. If it had been a visit of curiosity, Quackart's absence from town was understandable. He would not have returned at the hour he was rung up. Aunt Alma was cooking a hasty breakfast, and they had accepted her offer gratefully, for both men were famished, and they were in the midst of the meal when the London call came through. Is that you, Poircart? That is I, said Poircart's voice. Where are you speaking from? Heavy Tree Farm. Did you see anything of Miss Lester? There was a pause. Has she gone? You didn't know? Another pause. Oh, yes, I knew. In fact, I accompanied her part of the way to London and was bumped off when the trolley struck a refuge on the Great West Road. Meadows is here. He has just come from Aubergine's. He says he has found nothing. Manfred thought for a while. We will be back soon after nine, he said. Leon driving you? was the dry response. Yes, in spite of which we shall be back at nine. That man has got a grudge against my driving, said Leon, when Manfred reported the conversation. I knew it was he when Digby described the car and said there was a fat roll of Macintosh on the top. Fat roll is not a bad description. Do you know whether Poichart spoke to Miss Lester? Yes, he asked her if she grew onions, a reply which sent Leon into fits of silent laughter. Breakfast was over and they were making their preparations for departure. When Leon asked unexpectedly, Has Miss Lester a writing table of her own? Yes, in her room, said Alma, and took him up to show him the old bureau. He opened the drawers without apology, took out some old letters, turned them over, reading them shamelessly. Then he opened the blotter. There were several sheets of blank paper headed Heavy Tree Farm and two which bore her signature at the bottom. Alma explained that the bank account of the establishment was in Mirabel's name, and when it was necessary to draw cash, it was a rule of the bank that it should be accompanied by a covering letter, a practice which still exists in some of the old West Country banking establishments. She unlocked a drawer that he had not been able to open and showed him a checkbook with three blank checks signed with her name. That banker has known me since I was so high, said Alma scornfully. You wouldn't think there'd be so much red tape. Leon nodded. Do you keep any account books? Yes, I do, said Alma in surprise. The household accounts, you mean? Could I see one? She went out and returned with a thin ledger, and he made a brief examination of its contents. Wholly inadequate, thought Alma, considering the trouble she had taken and the interest he had shown. That's that, he said. Now, George, en voiture. Why did you want to see the account book? asked Manfred as they bowled up the road. I am naturally commercial-minded, was the unsatisfactory reply. And George, we're short of juice. Pray like a knight in armor that we sight a filling station in the next ten minutes. If George had prayed, the prayer would have been answered. Just as the cylinder started to miss, they pulled up the car before a garage and took in a supply which was more than sufficient to carry them to their destination. It was nine o'clock exactly when the car stopped before the house. Poicart, watching the arrival from George's room, smiled grimly at the impertinent gesture of the chauffeur. Behind locked doors the three sat in conference. This has upset all my plans, said Leon at last. If the girl was safe, I should settle with Aubergine tonight. George Manfred stroked his chin thoughtfully. He had once worn a trim little beard, and had never got out of that beard-stroking habit of his. We think exactly alike. I intended suggesting that course, he said gravely. The trouble is Meadows. 
I should like the case to have been settled one way or the other, and for Meadows to be out of it altogether. One doesn't wish to embarrass him, but the urgency is very obvious. It would have been very easy, said Leon, a note of regret in his gentle voice. Now, of course, it is impossible until the girl is safe. But for that, he shrugged his shoulders, tomorrow friend Aubergine would have experienced a sense of lassitude. No pain, just a little tiredness. Sleep, coma, death on the third day. He is an old man. One has no desire to hurt the aged. There is no hurt like fear. As for Gerther, we will try a more violent method, unless Aubergine gets him first. I sincerely hope he does. This is news to me. What is this about Gerther? asked Poicart. Manfred told him. Leon is right now, Poicart nodded. He rose from the table and unlocked the door. If any of you men wish to sleep, your rooms are ready, the curtains are drawn, and I will wake you at such and such an hour. But neither were inclined for sleep. George had to see a client that morning, a man with a curious story to tell. Leon wanted a carburetor adjusted. They would both sleep in the afternoon, they said. The client arrived soon after. Poicard admitted him and put him in the dining room to wait before he reported his presence. I think this is your heron man, he said, and went downstairs to show up the collar. He was a commonplace-looking man with a straggling fair moustache and a weak chin. Debilitated or degenerate, he suggested. Probably a little of both, assented Manfred, when the butler had announced him. He came nervously into the room and sat down opposite Manfred. I tried to get you on the phone last night, he complained, but I got no answer. My office hours are from ten till two, said George good-humouredly. Now, will you tell me again the story of your sister? The man leaned back in the chair and clasped his knees, and began in a sing-song voice, as though he were reciting something that he had learned by heart. We used to live in Turkey. My father was a merchant of Constantinople, and my sister, who went to school in England, got extraordinary ideas and came back a most violent pro-Turk. She is a very pretty girl, and she came to know some of the best Turkish families, although my father and I were dead against her going about with these people. One day she went to call on Haimar Pasha, and that night she didn't come back. We went to the Pasha's house and asked for her, but he told us she had left at four o'clock. We then consulted the police, and they told us, after they had made investigations, that she had been seen going on board a ship which left for Odessa the same night. I hadn't seen her for ten years, until I went down to the Gringo Club, which is a little place in the East End, not high class, you understand, but very well conducted. There was a cabaret show after midnight, and whilst I was sitting there, thinking about going home, very bored, you understand, because that sort of thing doesn't appeal to me, I saw a girl come out from behind a curtain dressed like a Turkish woman, and begin a dance. She was in the middle of the dance when her veil slipped off. It was Marie. She recognized me at once and darted through the curtains. I tried to follow her, but they held me back. Did you go to the police? asked Manfred. The man shook his head. No, what is the use of the police? he went on in a monotonous tone. I had enough of them in Constantinople, and I made up my mind that I would get outside help. And then somebody told me of you, and I came along. Mr. Manfred, is it possible for you to rescue my sister? I'm perfectly sure that she is being detained forcibly and against her will. At the Gringo Club? asked Manfred. Yes, he nodded. I'll see what I can do, said George, 
Perhaps my friends and I will come down and take a look round some evening. In the meantime, will you go back to your friend Dr. Aubergeon and tell him that you have done your part and I will do mine? Your little story will go into my collection of unplausible inventions. He touched a bell and Poicart came in. Show Mr. Lickens out, please. Don't hurt him. He may have a wife and children, although it is extremely unlikely. The visitor slunk from the room as though he had been whipped. The door had scarcely closed upon him when Poicart called Leon down from his room. Son, he said, George wants that man trailed. Leon peeped out after the retiring victim of Turkish tyranny. Not a hard job, he said. He has flat feet. Poicart returned to the consulting room. Who is he? he asked. I don't know. He's been sent here either by Aubergeon or by friend Newton, the general idea being to bring us all together at the Gringo Club, which is fairly well known to me, on some agreeable evening. A bad actor. He has no tone. I shouldn't be surprised if Leon finds something very interesting about him. He's been here before, hasn't he? Manfred nodded. Yes, he was here the day after Barberton came. At least I had his letter the next morning and saw him for a few moments in the day. Queer devil, Aubergeon. And an industrious devil, he added. He sets everybody moving at once, and of course he's right. A good general doesn't attack with a platoon, but with an army, with all his strength, knowing that if he fails to pierce the line at one point he may succeed at another. It's an interesting thought, Raymond, that at this moment there are probably some twenty separate and independent agencies working for our undoing, most of them ignorant that their efforts are being duplicated. That is Aubergeon's way, always has been his way. It's the way he has started revolutions, the way he has organized religious riots. After he had had his bath and changed, he announced his intention of calling at Chester Square. I'm rather keen on meeting Joan Newton again, even if she has returned to her normal state of Jane Smith. Miss Newton was not at home, the maid told him when he called. Would he see Mr. Montague Newton, who was not only at home but anxious for him to call, if the truth be told, for he had seen his enemy approaching? I shall be pleased, murmured Manfred, and was ushered into the splendor of Mr. Newton's drawing-room. Too bad about Joan, said Mr. Newton easily. She left for the continent this morning. Without a passport? smiled Manfred. A little slip on the part of Monty, but how was Manfred to know that the authorities had, only a week before, refused the renewal of her passport pending an inquiry into certain irregularities? The suggestion had been that other people than she had traveled to and from the continent armed with this individual document. You don't need a passport for Belgium, he lied readily. Anyway, this passport stuff's a bit overdone. We're not at war now. All the time we're at war, said Manfred. May I sit down? Do. Have a cigarette? Let me see the brand before I accept, said Manfred cautiously, and a man guffawed as at a great joke. The visitor declined the offer of the cigarette case and took one from a box on the table. And is Jane making the grand tour? he asked blandly. Jane's run down and wants a rest. What's the matter with Aylesbury? He saw the man flinch at the mention of the women's convict establishment, but he recovered instantly. It is not far enough out, and I am told that there are all sorts of queer people living round there. No, she's going on to Brussels and then on to Aix-la-Chapelle, then probably to Spa. I don't suppose I shall see her again for a month or two. She was at Heavy Tree Farm in the early hours of this morning, said Manfred.
and so were you. You were seen and recognized by a friend of mine, Mr. Raymond Poicart. You traveled from Heavy Tree Farm to Aubergine's house in a Ford trolley. Not by a flicker of an eyelid did Monty Newton betray his dismay. That is bluff, he said. I didn't leave this house last night. What happened at Heavy Tree Farm? Miss Lester was abducted. You are surprised, almost agitated, I notice. Do you think I had anything to do with it? asked Monty steadily. Yes, and the police share my view. A provisional warrant was issued for your arrest this morning. I thought you ought to know. Now the man drew back. His face went from red to white and into a deeper red again. Manfred laughed softly. You've got a guilty conscience, Newton, he said, and that's halfway to being arrested. Where is Jane? Gone abroad, I tell you. He was thrown off his balance by this all-too-successful bluff and had lost some of his self-possession. She is with Mirabel Lester, of that I'm sure, said Manfred. I've warned you twice, and it is not necessary to warn you a third time. I don't know how far deep you're in these snake murders. A jury will decide that sooner or later. But you're dead within six hours of my learning that Miss Lester has been badly treated. You know that is true, don't you? Manfred was speaking very earnestly. You're more scared of us than you are of the law, and you're right, because we do not put our men to the hazard of a jury's intelligence. You get the same trial from us as you get from a judge who knows all the facts. You can't beat an English judge, Newton. The smell returned and he left the room. Fred, near at hand, waiting in the passage but at a respectful distance from the door, let him out with some alacrity. Monty Newton turned his head sideways, caught a fleeting glimpse of the man he hated, hated worse than he hated Leon Gonzalez, and then called harshly for his servant. Come here, he said, and Fred obeyed. They'll be sending round to make inquiries, and I want you to know what to tell them, he said. Miss Joan went away this morning to the continent by the 8.15. She's either in Brussels or Aix la Chapelle. You're not sure of the hotel, but you'll find out. Is that clear to you? Yes, sir. Fred was looking aimlessly about the room. What's the matter with you? I was wondering where the clock is. Clock? Now Monty Newton heard it himself. The tick, tick, tick of a cheap clock, and he went livid. Find it, he said hoarsely, and even as he spoke his eyes fell upon the little black box that had been pushed beneath the desk, and he groped for the door with a scream of terror. Passers-by in Chester Square saw the door flung open and two men rushed headlong into the street. And the little American clock, which Manfred had purchased a few days before, went on ticking out the time and was still ticking merrily when the police experts went in and opened the box. It was Manfred's oldest jest, and never failed. End of chapter 21Chapter 22 of The Three Just Men by Edgar Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. In the Store Cellar. It was impossible that Mirabel Lester could fail to realize the serious danger in which she stood. Why she had incurred the enmity of Aubergine, for what purpose this man was anxious to keep her under his eye, she could not even guess. It was a relief to wake up in the early morning as she did and find Joan sleeping in the same room, for though she had many reasons for mistrusting her, there was something about this dull-faced girl that made an appeal to her. Joan was lying on the bed fully dressed. 
and at the sound of the creaking bed she turned and got up, fastening her skirt. "'Well, how do you like your new home?' she asked, with an attempt at joviality, which she was far from feeling, in spite of Monty's assurances. "'I've seen better,' said Mirabel coolly. "'I'll bet you have.' Joan stretched and yawned, then, opening one of the cupboards, took a shovelful of coal and threw it into the furnace, clanging the iron door. "'That's my job,' she said humorously, "'to keep you warm.' "'How long am I going to be kept here?' Five days,' was the surprising answer. "'Why five? asked Mirabel curiously. "'I don't know. Maybe they'll tell you,' said Joan. She fixed a plug in the wall and turned on the small electric fire. Disappearing, she came back with a kettle which she placed on top of the ring. "'The view's not grand, but the food's good,' she said, with a gaiety that Mirabel was now sure was forced. "'You're with these people, of course, Dr. Robijan and Newton?' "'Mr. Newton,' corrected Joan. "'Yes, I'm his fiance. "'We're going to be married when things get a little better,' she said vaguely. "'And there's no use in your getting sore with me because I helped to bring you here. "'Monty's told me all about it. "'They're going to do you no harm at all.' "'Then why?' began Mirabel. "'He'll tell you,' interrupted Joan, sooner or later. "'The old man, or, or, well, Monty isn't in this. "'He's only obliging over Jean.' With one thing, Mirabel agreed. It was a waste of time to indulge in recriminations or to reproach the girl for her supreme treachery. After all, Joan owed nothing to her, and had been from the first a tool employed for her detention. It would have been as logical for a convict to reproach the prison guard. "'How do you come to be doing this sort of thing?' she asked, watching the girl making tea. "'Where do you get this sort of thing from?' demanded Joan. If you suppose that I spend my life chaperoning females, you've got another guest coming. Scared, aren't you? She looked across at Mirabel, and the girl shook her head. Not really. I should be, confessed Joan. Do you mind condensed milk? There's no other. Yes, I should be writhing under the table, knowing something about Aubergine. If I were Aubergine, said Mirabel with spirit, I should be hiding in a deep hole where the four just men would not find me. Four just men, sneered the girl, and then her face changed. Were they the people who whipped Gerther? Mirabel had not heard this exploit, but she gave them credit with a nod. Is that so? Does Gerther know they're friends of yours? she asked significantly. I don't know Gerther. He's the man who danced with you the other night. Lord, I forget what name we gave him. Because if he does know, my dear, she said slowly, You've got two people to be extremely careful with. Gerther's half mad. Monty has always said so. He dopes, too, and there are times when he's not a man at all but a low-down wolf. I'm scared of him, I'll admit it. There aren't four just men, anyway, she went off on a tangent. There haven't been more than three for years. One of them was killed in Bordeaux. That's a town I'd hate to be killed in, said Joan irreverently. An interval of silence followed while she opened an airtight tin and took out a small cake, and, putting it on the table, cut it into slices. "'What are they like?' she asked. Evidently, the interval had been filled with thoughts of the men from Curzon Street. "'Monty says they're just bluff, but I'm not so sure that Monty tells me all he thinks. He's so scared that he told me to call and see them just because they gave him an order, which isn't like Monty.' 
They've killed people, haven't they? Mirabelle nodded. And got away with it? They must be clever. Joan's admiration was dragged from her. Where do they get their money? This was always an interesting matter to Joan. When the girl explained she was really impressed, that they could kill and get away with it was wonderful, that they were men of millions, placed them in a category apart. They'll never find you here, said Joan. There's nobody living knows about this vault. There used to be eight men working here, sorting monkey hides, and every one of them's dead. Monty told me. He said this place is below the canal level, and Aubergine can flood it in five minutes. Monty thinks the old man had an idea of running a slush factory here. What is a slush factory? asked Mirabelle, open mouth. Phony, snide, counterfeit. Not English, but continental work. He was going to do that if things had gone really bad, but of course you make all the difference. Mirabelle put down her cup. Does he expect to make money out of me, she said, trying hard not to laugh. The girl nodded solemnly. Does he think I have a great deal of money? He's sure. Joan was sure, too. Her tone said that plainly enough. Mirabel sat down on the bed, for the moment too astonished to speak. Her own financial position was no mystery. She had been left sufficient to bring her in a small sum yearly, and with the produce of the farm had managed to make both ends meet. It was the failure of the farm as a source of profit which had brought her to her new job in London. Alma had also a small annuity. The farm was the girl's property, but beyond these revenues she had nothing. There was not even a possibility that she was an heiress. Her father had been a comparatively poor man, and had been supported in his numerous excursions to various parts of the world in search of knowledge by the scientific societies to which he was attached. His literary earnings were negligible, his books enjoyed only a very limited sale. She could trace her ancestry back for seven generations, knew of her uncles and aunts, and they did not include a single man or woman who, in the best traditions of storybooks, had gone to America and made an immense fortune. It is absurd, she said. I have no money. If Mr. Aubergeon puts me up to ransom, it will have to be something under a hundred. Put you up to ransom, said Joan. I don't get you there. But you're rich, all right. I can tell you that. Monty says so, and Monty wouldn't lie to me. Mirabelle was bewildered. It seemed almost impossible that a man of Aubergeon's intelligence and sources of information could make such a mistake. And yet Joan was earnest. They must have mistaken me for somebody else, she said, but Joan did not answer. She was sitting up in a listening attitude, and her eyes were directed towards the iron door which separated their sleeping apartment from the larger vault. She had heard the creak of the trap turning and the sound of feet coming down the stairs. Mirabelle rose as Aubergeon came in. He wore his black dressing gown, his smoking cap was at the back of his head, and the muddy Wellington boots which he had pulled over his feet looked incongruous, and would at any other time have provoked her to laughter. He favored her with a stiff nod. "'You have slept well, gracious lady,' he said, and to her amazement took her cold hand in his and kissed it. She felt the same feeling of revulsion and unreality as had overcome her that night at the dance when Gerther had similarly saluted her. It is a nice place for young people and for old. He looked round the apartment with satisfaction. Here I should be content to spend my life reading my books and giving my mind to thought, but, he spread his hands and shrugged, what would you? 
I am a businessman, with immense interests in every part of the world. I am rich, too, beyond your dreams. I have stores in every part of the world, and thousands of men and women on my payroll. Why was he telling her all this, she wondered, reciting the facts in a monotonous voice. Surely he had not come down to emphasize the soundness of his financial position? I am not very much interested in your business, Mr. Aubergins, he said, but I want to know why I am being detained here. Surely, if you're so rich, you do not want to hold me to ransom. To ransom? His forehead went up and down. That is foolish talk. Did she tell you? He pointed at the girl, and his face went as black as thunder. No, I guess, said Mirabel quickly, not wishing to get her companion into bad odor. I do not hold you to ransom. I hold you, lovely lady, because you are good for my eyes. Did not Heine say, The beauty of women is a sedative to the soul? You should read Heine. He is frivolous, but in his stupidity there are many clever thoughts. Now tell me, lovely lady, have you all you desire? I want to go out, she said. I can't stay in this underground room without danger to my health. Soon you shall go. He bowed stiffly again and shuffled across the floor to the furnace. Behind this were the two baize-covered boxes, and one he lifted tenderly. Here are secrets such as you should not pry into, he said in his awkward English. The most potent of chemicals, colossal in power. The ignorant would touch them and they would explode, you understand? He addressed Mirabel, who did not understand, but made no answer. They must be kept warm for that reason. One I take, the other I leave. You shall not touch it, that is understood? My good friend has told you? He brought his eyes to Joan. I understand all right, she said. Listen, Aubergine, when am I going out for a walk? This place is getting on my nerves already. Tonight you shall have exercise with a lovely lady. I myself will accompany you. Why am I here, Mr. Aubergine? Mirabel asked again. You are here because you are in danger, said Aubergine, holding the green box under his arm. You are in very great danger. He nodded with every word. There are certain men, of all the most infamous, who have a design upon your life. They are criminal, cunning and wise, but not so cunning or wise as Dr. Aubergine. Because I will not let you fall into their hands, I keep you here, young miss. Good morning. Again he bowed stiffly and went out, the iron door clanging behind him. He heard him climb the stairs, the thud of the trap as it fell, and the rumble which Joan, at any rate, knew was made by the cement barrel being rolled to the top of the trap. Pleasant little fellow, isn't he? said Joan bitterly. Him and his chemicals. She glared down at the remaining box. If I were sure it wouldn't explode, I would smash it to smithereens, she said. Later she told the prisoner of Aubergine's obsession of how he spent time and money in his search for the vital elixir. Monty thinks he'll find it, she said seriously. Do you know that that old man has had an ox stewed down to a pint? There used to be a king in Europe, I forget his name, who had the same stuff, but not so strong. Monty says that Aubergine hardly ever takes a meal, just a teaspoon of this dope and he's right for the day. And Monty says... For the rest of that dreary morning, the girl listened without hearing to the wise sayings and clever acts of Monty, and every now and again her eyes strayed to the baize-covered box which contained the most potent chemicals, and she wondered whether, in the direst extremity, she would be justified in employing these dread forces for her soul's salvation. 
End of chapter 22. Chapter 23 of The Three Just Men by Edgar Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Courier. Elijah Washington came up to London for a consultation. With the exception of a blue contusion beneath his right eye, he was none the worse for his alarming experience. Leon Gonzalez had driven him to town, and on the way up the big man had expressed views about snake-bite which were immensely interesting to the man at the wheel. I've figured it out this way. There is no snake at all. What happens is that these guys have extracted snake venom, and that's easy, by making a poisoned snake bite on something soft, and a poison to dart or a burr with the venom. I've seen that done in Africa, particularly up in the Aturi country, and it's pretty common in South America. The fellow just throws or shoots it, and just where the dart hits, he gets snake poisoning right away. That is an excellent theory, said Leon. Only no dart or burr has ever been found. It is the first thing the police look for in the case of the stockbroker. They had the ground searched for days. And it was just the same in the case of the tramp and the bank clerk, just the same in the case of Barberton. A dart would stick some time and would be found in the man's clothing or near the spot where he was struck down. How do you account for that? Mr. Washington very frankly admitted that he couldn't account for it at all, and Leon chuckled. I can, he said. In fact, I know just how it's done. Great snakes, gasped Washington in amazement. Then why don't you tell the police? The police know, now, said Leon. It isn't snake bite, it is nicotine poisoning. How's that? asked the startled man. But Leon had his joke to himself. After a consultation which lasted most of the night, they had brought Washington from Rath Hall, and on the way Leon hinted gently that the three had a mission for him and hoped he would accept. "'You're much too good a fellow to be put into an unnecessary dangerous position,' he said, "'and even if you weren't, we wouldn't lightly risk your blessed life. But the job we should ask you to do isn't exactly a picnic.' "'Listen,' said Mr. Washington with sudden energy, "'I don't want any more snakes.' Not that kind of snake. I felt pain in my time, but nothing like this. I know it must have been snake venom, but I'd like to meet the little wriggler who bruised that brand that was handed to me, and maybe I'll change my mind about collecting him alive. Leon agreed silently, and for the next few moments was avoiding a streetcar on one side, a baker's cart on another, and a blah woman who was walking aimlessly in the road apparently with no other intention than of courting an early death, this being the way of blah women. Phew, said Mr. Washington, as the car skidded on the greasy road, I don't know whether you're a good driver or just naturally under the protection of Providence. Both, said Leon, when he had straightened the machine. All good drivers are that. Presently he continued, It is snake venom, all right, Mr. Washington. Only snake venom that has been most carefully treated by a man who knows the art of concentration of its bad and the extraction of its harmless constituents. My theory is that certain alkaloids are added, and it is possible that there has been a blending of two different kinds of poison. But you're right when you say that no one animal carries in his poison sack that particular variety of death juice. If it is any value to you, we are prepared to give you a snake-proof certificate." I don't want another experience of that kind, Elijah Washington warned him, 
but Leon turned the conversation to the state of the road and the problems of traffic control. There had been nothing seen or heard of Mirabel, and Meadows' activities had for the moment been directed to the forthcoming inquest on Barberton. Nowadays, whenever he reached Scotland Yard, he moved in a crowd of reporters, all anxious for news of further developments. The Barberton death was still the liveliest topic in the newspapers. The old scare of the snake had been revived and in some degree intensified. There was not a journal which did not carry columns of letters to the editor denouncing the inactivity of the police. Were they, asked one sarcastic correspondent, under the hypnotic influence of the snake's eyes? Could they not, demanded another, give up trapping speeders on the Lingfield Road and bring their mighty brains to the elucidation of a mystery that was to cause every household in London the gravest concern? The Barberton murder was the peg on which every letter-writing faddist had a novel view to hang, and Mr. Meadows was not at that time the happiest officer in the force. "'Where is Lee?' asked Washington as they came into Curzon Street. "'He's in town for the moment, but we are moving him to the north of England, though I don't think there is any danger to him now that Barberton's letters are in our possession. They would have killed him yesterday to prevent our handling the correspondence.' Today I should imagine he has no special importance in the eyes of Auberjean and company, and here we are. Mr. Washington got out stiffly and was immediately admitted by the butler. The three men went upstairs to where George Manford was wrestling with a phase of the problem. He was not alone. Digby, his head swathed in bandages, sat, an unhappy man, on the edge of a chair and answered Leon's cheery greeting with a mournful smile. I'm sending Digby to keep observation in Aubergeon's house, and especially do I wish him to search that old boat of his. He was referring to an ancient barge which lay on the mud at the bottom of Mr. Aubergeon's private dock. From the canal there was a narrow waterway into the little factory grounds. It was so long since the small cantilever bridge which covered the entrance had been raised that locals regarded the bridge floor as part of the normal bank of the canal but behind the green water gates was a concrete dock large enough to hold one barge, and here for years a decrepit vessel had wallowed, the hunting ground of rats and the sleeping place of the desperately homeless. The barge is practically immovable. I've already reported on that, said Leon. It certainly has that appearance, and yet I would like a search, replied Manford. You understand that this is night duty, and I have asked Meadows to notify the local inspector that you will be on duty. I don't want to be pulled out of my bed to identify you at the Peckham police station. It isn't a cheerful job, but you might be able to make it interesting by finding your way into his grounds. I don't think the factory will yield much, but the house will certainly be a profitable study to an observer of human nature. I hope I do better this time, Mr. Manfred, said Digby, turning to go. And if you don't mind, I'll go by day and take a look at the place. I don't want to fall down this time. George smiled as he rose and shook the man's hand at parting. "'Even Mr. Gonzales makes mistakes,' he said maliciously, and Leon looked hurt. Manfred tidied some papers on his desk and put them into a drawer, waiting for Poicart's return. When he had come, "'Now, Mr. Washington, we will tell you what we wish you to do. We wish you to take a letter to Lisbon. Leon has probably hinted something to that effect.' and it is now my duty to tell you that the errand is pretty certain to be an exceedingly dangerous one. But you are the only man I know to whom I can entrust this important document. 
I feel I cannot allow you to undertake this mission without telling you that the chances are heavily against your reaching Portugal. Bless you for those cheerful words, said Washington blankly. The only thing I want to be certain about is, am I likely to meet Mr. Snake? Manfred nodded and the American's face lengthened. I don't know that even that scares me, he said at last, especially now that I know that the dope they use isn't on a snake's bit at all but a synthetic poison. It was having my confidence shaken in snakes that rattled me. When do you want me to go? Tonight? Mr. Washington for the moment was perplexed, and Manfred continued. Not by the Dover-Calais route. We would prefer that you travel by New Haven-Dieppe. Our friends are less liable to be on the alert, though I can't even guarantee that. Oberzon spends a lot of money in espionage. This house has been under observation for days. I will show you. He walked to the window and drew aside the curtain. Do you see a spy? he asked, with a twinkle in his eye. Mr. Washington looked up and down the street. Sure, he said, that man at the corner smoking a cigar. Is a detective officer from Scotland Yard, said Manfred. Do you see anybody else? Yes, said Washington after a while. There's a man cleaning windows on the opposite side of the road. He keeps looking across here. A perfectly innocent citizen, said Manford. Well, he can't be in any of those taxis because they're empty. Mr. Washington nodded to a line of taxis drawn up on the rank in the center of the road. On the contrary, he is in the first taxi on the rank. He is the driver. If you went out and called a cab, he would come to you. If anybody else called him, he would be engaged. His name is Clark. He lives at 43 Portlington Mews, he is an ex-convict living apart from his wife, and he receives seven pounds a week for his services, ten pounds every time he drives over Jean's car, and all the money he makes out of his cab. He smiled at the other's astonishment. So the chances are that your movements will be known. Even though you do not call the cab, he will follow you. You must be prepared for that. I'm putting all my cards on the table, Mr. Washington, and asking you to do something which, if you cannot bring yourself to agree, must be done by either myself, Poicard, or Gonzales. Frankly, none of us can be spared. I'll go, said the American. Snake or no snake, I'm for Lisbon. What is my route? Poicard took a folded paper from his pocket. New Haven, Dieppe, Paris. You have a reserve compartment on the Sud Express. You reach Valladolid late tomorrow night and change to the Portuguese mail unless I can fix an airplane to meet you at Arun. We are trying now, otherwise you should be in Lisbon at two o'clock on the following afternoon. He had better take the letter now, George. Manfred unlocked the wall safe and took out a long envelope. It was addressed to Signor Alvaz Manuel Isintra, Minister of Colonies, and was heavily sealed. I want you to place this in Signor Sintra's hands. You'll have no difficulty there because you will be expected, he said. Will you travel in that suit? The American thought. Yes, that's as good as any, he said. Will you take off your jacket? Mr. Washington obeyed, and with a small pair of scissors, Manfred cut a slit in the lining and slipped the letter in. Then, to the American's astonishment, Leon produced a rolled housewife, threaded a needle with extraordinary dexterity, and for the next five minutes the snake hunter watched the deft fingers stitching through paper and lining. So skillfully was the slit sewed that Elijah Washington had to look twice to make sure where the lining had been cut. "'Well, that beats the band,' he said. 
Mr. Gonzales will send you my shirts for repair. And here is something for you to carry. It was a black leather portfolio, well worn. To one end was attached a steel chain terminating in a leather belt. I want you to put this round your waist, and from now on to carry this wallet. It contains nothing more important than a few envelopes imposingly sealed, and if you lose it, no great harm will come. You think they'll go for the wallet? Manfred nodded. One cannot tell, of course, but Oberzon will do, and he's as wily as one of his snakes. But my experience has been, he said, that the cleverer the criminal, the bigger the fool and the more outrageous his mistakes. You will want money. Well, I'm not short of that, said the other with a smile. Snakes are a mighty profitable proposition. Still, I'm a businessman. For the next five minutes they discussed financial details, and he was more than surprised to discover the recklessness with which money was dispersed. He went out with a glance from the corner of his eye at the taxi man, whose hand was raised inquiringly, but, ignoring the driver, he turned and walked towards Regent Street, and presently found a wandering taxi of an innocuous character, and ordered the man to drive to the Ritz-Carlton, where rooms had been taken for him. He was in Regent Street before he looked round through the peephole, and, as Manfred had promised him, the taxi was following, its flag down to prevent chance hiring. Mr. Washington went up to his room, opened the window, and looked out. The taxi had joined a nearby rank. The driver had left his box. "'He's on the phone,' muttered Mr. Washington, and would have given a lot of money to have known the nature of the message. End of chapter 23「A man of habit, Mr. Oberjohn missed his daily journey to the city road. In ordinary circumstances the loss would have been a paralyzing one, but of late he had grown more and more wedded to his deep armchair and his ponderous volumes, and though the city road had been a very useful establishment in many ways, and was ill replaced by the temporary building which his manager had secured, he felt he could almost dispense with that branch of his business altogether. Aubergeon and Smith's was an institution which had grown out of nothing. The energy of the partners, and especially the knowledge of African trading conditions which the departed Smith's possessed, had produced a flourishing business which ten years before could have been floated for half a million pounds. Orders still came in. There were up-country stores to be restocked, new, if unimportant, contracts to be fulfilled. There was even a tentative offer under consideration from one of the South American states for the armaments of a political faction. But Mr. Aubergeon was content to mark time, in the faith that the next week would see him superior to these minor considerations, and in a position, if he so wished, to liquidate his business and sell his stores and his trade. There were purchasers ready but the half a million pounds had dwindled to a tenth of that sum, which outstanding bills would more than absorb. As Manfred had said, his running expenses were enormous. He had agents in every central government office in Europe, and though they did not earn their salt, they certainly drew more than condiment for their services. He had spent a busy morning in his little workshop laboratory, and had settled himself down in his chair, when a telegraph messenger came trundling his bicycle across the rough ground, stopped to admire for a second the iron dogs which littered the untidy strip of lawn 
and woke the echoes of this gaunt house with a thunderous knock. Mr. Aubergine hurried to the door. A telegram to this address must necessarily be important. He took the telegram, slammed the door in the messenger's face, and hurried back to his room, tearing open the envelope as he went. There were three sheets of misspelt writing, for the wire was in Portuguese, and telegraph operators are bad guessers. He read it through carefully, his lips moving silently, until he came to the end, then he started reading all over again, and for a better understanding of its purport, he took a pencil and paper and translated the message into Swedish. He laid the telegram face downwards on the table and took up his book, but he was not reading. His busy mind slipped from Lisbon to London, from Curzon Street to the factory, and at last he shut his book with a bang, got up, and opening the door, barked Gerther's name. That strange man came downstairs in his stockinged feet, his hair hanging over his eyes, an unpleasant sight. Dr. Robergeon pointed to the room and the man entered. For an hour they talked behind locked doors, and then Gerther came out, still showing his teeth in a mechanical smile, and went up the stairs two at a time. The half-witted Danish maid, passing the door of the doctor's room, heard his gruff voice booming into the telephone but since he spoke a language which, whilst it had some relation to her own, was subtly different, she could not have heard the instructions, admonitions, orders, and suggestions which he fired in half a dozen different directions, even if she had heard him clearly. This done, Dr. Aubergeon returned to his book in a midday refreshment, spooning his lunch from a small cup at his side containing a few fluid ounces of dark red liquid. One half of his mind was pursuing his well-read philosophers, the other worked at feverish speed, conjecturing and guessing, forestalling and baffling the minds that were working against him. He played a game of mental chess, all the time seeking for a check, and when at last he had discovered one that was adequate, he put down his book and went out into his garden, strolling up and down inside the wire fence, stopping now and again to pick a flower from a weed or pausing to examine a rain-filled pothole, as though it were the star object in a prize landscape. He loved this ugly house, knew every brick of it, as the feudal lord might have known the castle he had built. The turret, the flat roof with its high parapet, that commanded a view of the canal bank on the one side and the railway arches left and right. They were railway arches which had a value to him. Most of them were blocked up having been converted into lock-up garages and sheds, and through only a few could ingress be had. One, under which ran the muddy lane, why it was called Hangman's Lane nobody knew, another that gave to some allotments on the edge of his property, and a third through which he could also see daylight, but which spanned no road at all. An express train roared past in a cloud of steam, and he scanned the viaduct with benignant interest, and then he performed his daily tour of inspection. Turning back into the house, he climbed the stairs to the third floor, opened a little door that revealed an extra flight of steps, and emerged onto the roof. At each corner was a square black shed, about the height of a man's chest. The doors were heavily padlocked, and nearby each was a stout black box, equally waterproof. There were other things here, great clumsy wall plugs at regular intervals. Seeing them, it might be thought that Mr. Aubergeon contemplated a night when in the exaltation of achievement, he would illuminate his ungainly premises. But up to now, that night had not arrived, 
and in truth the only light usable was one which at the moment was dismantled in the larger of the four sheds. From here he could look down upon the water cutting into the factory grounds, and the black bulk of the barge, which filled the entire width of the wharf, seemed so near that he could have thrown a stone upon it. His idle interest was in the sluggish black water that oozed through the gates. A slight mist lay upon the canal, the barge was passing down towards Deptford, and he contemplated the straining horse that tugged the barge rope with a mind set upon the time when he, too, might use the waterway in a swifter craft. London lay around him, its spires and chimneys looming through the thin haze of smoke. Far away the sun caught the golden ball of St. Paul's and added a new star to the firmament. Mr. Aubergeon hated London. Only this little patch of his had beauty in his eyes. Not the broad green parks and the flowering rhododendrons, not the majestic aisles of pleasure where the rich lounger rode or walked, nor the streets of stone-fronted stores, nor the pleasant green of suburban roads. He loved only these God-forgotten acres, this slimy wilderness in which he had set up his habitation. He went downstairs, locking the roof door behind him, and passing Gerther's room, knocked and was asked to enter. The man sat in his singlet, he had shaved once, but now the keen razor was going across his skin for the second time. He turned his face, shining with cream, and grinned round at the intruder. And with a grunt the doctor shut the door and went downstairs, knowing that the man was for the moment happy, for nothing pleased Gerther quite so much as dressing up. The doctor stood at the entrance of his own room, hesitating between books and laboratory, deciding upon the latter, and was busy for the next two hours. Only once he came out, and that was to bring from the warm room the green baize box which contained the most potent of chemicals, colossal in power. The New Haven Dieppe route is spasmodically popular. There are nights when the trains to Paris are crowded, other nights when it is possible to obtain a carriage to yourself, and it happened that, this evening, when Elijah Washington booked his seat, he might, if it had been physically possible, have sat in one compartment and put his feet on the seat in another. Between the two great branches of the Anglo-Saxon race there is one notable difference. The Englishman prefers to travel in solitude and silence. His ideal journey is one from London to Constantinople in a compartment that is not invaded except by the ticket collector, and if it is humanly possible that he can reach his destination without having given utterance to anything more sensational than an agreement with some other passenger's comment on the weather, he is indeed a happy man. The American loves company. He has the acquisitiveness of the Latin, combined with the rhetorical virtues of the Teuton. Solitude makes him miserable. Silence irritates him. He wants to talk about large and important things, such as the future of the country, the prospects of agriculture and the fluctuations of trade, about which the average Englishman knows nothing and is less interested. The American has a town pride can talk almost emotionally about a new drainage system and grow eloquent upon a municipal balance sheet. The Englishman does not cultivate his town pride until he reaches middle age, and then only in sufficient quantities to feel disappointed with the place of his birth after he has renewed its acquaintance. Mr. Washington found himself in an empty compartment, and grunting his dissatisfaction, walked along the corridor, peeping into one cell after another, in the hope of discovering a fellow countryman in a similar unhappy plight. His search was fruitless, and he returned to the carriage in which his bag and overcoat were deposited, 
and settled down to the study of an English humorous newspaper in a vain search for something at which any intelligent man could laugh. The doors of the coach were at either end, and most passengers entering had to pass the open entrance of Mr. Washington's compartment. At every click of the door he looked up, hoping to find a congenial soul. But disappointment awaited him until a lady hesitated by the door. It was a smoking carriage, but Washington, who was a man of gallant character, would gladly have sacrificed his cigar for the pleasure of her society. Young, he guessed, than a widow. She was in black. An attractive face showed through a heavy veil. "'Is this compartment engaged?' she asked in a low voice that was almost a whisper. "'No, madam.' Washington rose, hat in hand. "'Would you mind?' she asked in a soft voice. "'Why, surely. Sit down, ma'am,' said the gallant American. "'Would you like the corner seat by the window?' She shook her head and sat down near the door, turning her face from him. "'Do you mind my smoking?' asked Washington after a while. "'Please smoke,' she said, and again turned her face away. "'English,' thought Mr. Washington in disgust, and hunched himself for an hour and a half of unrelieved silence. A whistle blew, the train moved slowly from the platform, and Elijah Washington's adventurous journey had begun. They were passing through Croydon when the girl rose, and leaning out, closed the little glass-paneled door. "'You should let me do that,' said Elijah reproachfully. She murmured something about not wishing to trouble him, and he relapsed into his seat. One or two of the men who passed looked in. It evidently this annoyed her, for she reached and pulled down the spring blind which partially hid her from outside observation, and after the ticket collector had been and had punched the slips, she lowered the second of the three blinds. "'Do you mind?' she asked. "'Sure not, ma'am,' said Elijah without any great hardiness. He had no desire to travel alone with a lady in a carriage so discreetly curtained. He had heard of cases, and by nature he was an extremely cautious man. The speed of the train increased. The wandering passengers had settled down. The second of the chicken inspections came as they were rushing through Red Hill, and Mr. Washington thought uncomfortably that there was a significant look in the inspector's face as he glanced first at the drawn blinds, then from the lady to himself. She affected a perfume of a peculiarly pleasing kind. The carriage was filled with this subtle fragrance. Mr. Washington smelt it above the scent of his cigar. Her face was still averted. He wondered if she had gone to sleep, and, growing weary of his search for humor, he put down the paper, folded his hands and closed his eyes, and found himself gently drifting to that medley of the real and unreal which is the overture of dreams. The lady moved. He looked at her out of the corner of his half-closed eyes. She had moved round so as to half-face him. Her veil was still down. Her white gloves were reflectively clasped on her knees. He shut his eyes again until another movement brought him awake. She was feeling in her bag. Mr. Washington was awake now, as wide awake as he had ever been in his life. In stretching out her hand, the lady had pulled short her sleeve, and there was a gap of flesh between the glove and the wrist of her blouse, and on her wrist was hair. He shifted his position slightly, grunted as in his sleep, and dropped his hand to his pocket, and all the time those cold eyes were watching him through the veil. Lifting the bottom of the veil, she put the ebony holder between her teeth and searched the bag for a match. Then she turned appealingly to him as though she had sensed his wakefulness. As she rose, Washington rose too, 
and suddenly he sprang at her and flung her back against the door. For a moment the veiled lady was taken by surprise, and then there was a flash of steel. From nowhere a knife had come into her hand, and Washington gripped the wrist and levered it over, pushing the palm of his hand under the chin. Even through the veil he could feel the bristles, and knew now, if he had not known before, that he had to deal with a man. A live, active man, rendered doubly strong by the knowledge of his danger. Gerther butted forward with his head, but Washington saw the attack coming, shortened his arm and jabbed full at the face behind the veil. The blow stopped the man, only for an instant, and again he came on, and this time the point of the knife caught the American shoulder and ripped the coat to the elbow. It needed this to bring forth Elijah Washington's mental and physical reserves. With a roar he gripped the throat of his assailant and threw him with such violence against the door that it gave, and the widow in mourning crashed against the panel of the outer corridor. Before he could reach the attacker, Gerther had turned and sped along the corridor to the door of the coach. In a second he had flung it open and had dropped to the footboard. The train was slowing to take Horsham Junction, and the cat-eyes waited until he saw a good fall and let go. Staring back into the darkness, Washington saw nothing, and then the train inspector came along. It was a man in woman's clothes, he said, a little breathlessly, and they went back to search the compartment, but Mr. Gerther had taken bag and everything with him, and the only souvenir of his presence was the heel of a shoe that had been torn off in the struggle. End of chapter 24「Twenty Five of the Three Just Men by Edgar Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Gerther returns. The train was going at thirty miles an hour when Gerther dropped onto a ridge of sand by the side of the track, and in the next second he was sliding forward on his face. Fortunately for him the veil, though torn, kept his eyes free. Stumbling to his feet he looked round. The level crossing gate should be somewhere here. He had intended jumping the train at this point, and Oberjohn had made arrangements accordingly. A signalman, perched high above the track, saw the figure and challenged. "'I've lost my way,' said Gerther. "'Where is the level crossing?' "'A hundred yards farther on. Keep clear of those metals. The Eastbourne Express is coming behind.' If Gerther had had his way, he would have stopped long enough to remove a rail for the sheer joy of watching a few hundred of the hated people plunge to destruction." but he guessed that the car was waiting, went sideways through the safety gates into a road which was fairly populous. There were people about who turned their heads and looked in amazement at the bedraggled woman in black, but he had gone beyond worrying about his appearance. He saw the car with the little green light which Aubergine invariably used to mark his machines from others, climbing into the cab, as it was, sat down to recover his breath. The driver he knew was one of the three men employed by Aubergine, one of whom Mr. Washington had seen that morning. The journey back to town was a long one, though the machine for a public vehicle was faster than most. Gerther welcomed the ride. Once more he had failed, and he reasoned that his last failure was the most serious of all. The question of Aubergine's displeasure did not really arise. He had travelled far beyond the point when the Swede's disapproval meant very much to him. But there might be a consequence more serious than any. He knew well with what instructions Pfeiffer had been primed on the night of the attack at Rathhouse. Only Gerther had been quicker, and his snake had bitten first. Dr. Aubergine had no illusions as to what had happened, 
and if he had tactfully refrained from making reference to the matter, he had his purpose and his reasons, and this night journey with Elijah Washington was one of them. There was no excuse, he had none to offer. His hand wandered beneath the dress to the long knife that was strapped to his side, and the touch of the worn handle was very reassuring. For the time being he was safe, until another man was found to take Pfeiffer's place, Aubergine was working single-handed and could not afford to dispense with the services of this, the last of his assassins. It was past eleven when he dismissed the taxi at the end of the long lane, and following the only safe path, came to the unpainted door that gave admission to Aubergine's property. And the first words of his master told him that there was no necessity for explanation. So you did not get him, Gerther? No, Herr Doctor. I should not have sent you. Aubergine's voice was extraordinarily mild in all the circumstances. That man you cannot kill with the snake. I have learned since you went that he was bitten at the blind man's house, yet lives. That is extraordinary. I would give a lot of money to test his blood. You tried the knife? Yeah, Herr Doctor. He lifted his veil, stripped off head and wig in one motion. The rouged and powdered face was bruised, from under the brown wig was a trickle of dried blood. Good! You have done as well as you could. Go to your room, Gerther. March! Gerther went upstairs and for a quarter of an hour was staring at his grinning face in the glass as with cream and soiled towel he removed his makeup. Oberson's very gentleness was a menace. What did it portend? Until that evening, neither Gerther nor his dead companion had been taken into the confidence of the two men who directed their activities. He knew there were certain papers to be recovered, he knew that there were men to be killed, but what value were the papers, or why death should be directed to this unfortunate or that, he neither knew nor cared. His duty had been to obey, and he had served the liberal paymaster well and loyally. That girl in the underground room? Gerther had many natural explanations for her imprisonment, and yet none of them fitted the conditions. His cogitations were wasted time. That night, for the first time, the doctor took him into his confidence. He had finished dressing and was on his way to his kitchen when the doctor stood at the doorway and called him in. Sit down, Gerther. He was almost kind. You will have a cigar? These are excellent. He threw a long, thin black cheroot and Gerther caught it between his teeth and seemed absurdly pleased with his trick. "'The time has come when you must know something, Gerther,' said the doctor. He took a fellow to the weed the man was smoking and puffed huge clouds of rank smoke into the room. "'I have for a friend who, Herr Newton?' He shrugged his shoulders. "'He is a very charming man, but he has no brains. He is the kind of man, Gerther, who would live in comfort, take all we gave him by our cleverness and industry, and never say thank you. And in trouble, what will he do, Gerther? He will go to the police. Yes, my dear friend, he will go to the police. He nodded. Gerther had heard the same story that night, when he had crept soft-footed to the door and had heard the doctor discuss certain matters with the late Mr. Pfeiffer. He would, without a wink of his eyelash, without a snap of his hand, send you and me to death, and would read about our execution with a smile and then go forth and eat his plum pudding and roast beef. That is our friend Herr Newton. You have seen this with your own eyes? Yeah, Herr Doctor, exclaimed the obedient Gerther. He is a danger for many reasons, Aubergine proceeded deliberately. 
because of these three men who have so infamously set themselves out to ruin me who burnt down my house who whipped you gerther they tied you up to a post and whipped you with a whip of nine tails you have not forgotten gerther nine her doctor indeed gerther had not forgotten though the vacant smirk on his face might suggest that he had a pleasant memory of the happening a fool in an organization continued the doctor oracularly is like a bad plate on a ship or a weak link in a chain let it snap and what happens you and i die my dear gerther we go up before a stupid man in a white wig and a red cloak and he hands us to another man who puts a rope around our necks drops us through a hole in the ground all because we have a stupid man like Herr montague newton to deal with yeah herr doctor said gerther as his master stopped he felt that this comment was required of him now i will tell you the whole truth the doctor carefully knocked off the ash of his cigar into the saucer of his cup there is a fortune for you and me and this girl that we have in the quiet place can give it to us i can marry her or i can wipe her out so if i marry her it would be better i think and this i have arranged and then in his own way he told the story of the hill of gold concealing nothing reserving nothing all that he knew all that via had told him for three four days now she must be here at the end of that time nothing matters the letter to lisbon of what value is it i was foolish when i tried to stop it she has made no nominee she has no heirs she has known nothing of her fortune and therefore is in no position to claim the renewal of the concession herr doctor you will graciously permit me to speak the doctor nodded does the newton know this the newton knows all this said the doctor will you graciously permit me to speak again herr doctor what was this letter i was to have taken had i not been overcome by misfortune Aubergeon examined the ceiling i have thought this matter from every angle he said and i have decided thus it was a letter written by gonzales to the secretary or the minister of the colonies asking that the renewal of the concession should be postponed the telegram from my friend at the colonial office in lisbon was to this effect he fixed his glasses fumbled in his waistcoat and took out a three-page telegram i will read it to you in your own language application has been received from leon gonzales asking his excellency to receive a very special letter which arrives in two days the telegram does not state the contents of the letter but the minister has given orders for the messenger to be received the present minister is not favorable to concessions granted to england or englishmen he folded the paper which means that there will be no postponement my dear gerther and this enormous fortune will be ours gerther considered this point and for a moment forgot to smile and looked what he was in consequence a hungry discontented wolf of a man herr doctor graciously permit me to ask you a question ask said Aubergeon magnanimously what share does herr newton get and if you so graciously honoured me with a portion of your so justly deserved gains to what extent would be that share the other considered this puffing away until the room was a mist of smoke Ten thousand English pounds, he said at last. Gracious and learned doctor, that is a very small proportion of many millions, said Gerther gently. Newton will receive one half, said the doctor, his face working nervously, if he is alive. If misfortune came to him, that share would be yours, Gerther, my brave fellow. 
and with so much money a man would not be hunted. The rich and the noble would fawn upon him. He would have his lovely yawn and steam about the summer seas everlastingly, huh? Bertha rose and clicked his heels. Do you desire me again this evening? No, no, Gerther. The old man shook his head. And pray remember that there is another day tomorrow, and yet another day after. We shall wait and hear what our friend has to say. Good night, Gerther. Good night, Herr Doctor. The doctor looked at the door for a long time after his man had gone and took up his book. He was deep in the chapter which was headed in the German tongue, the subconscious activity of the human intellect in relation to the esoteric emotions. To Dr. Aubergeon this was more thrilling than the most exciting novel. End of chapter 25「The second day of captivity dawned unseen, in a world that lay outside the brick roof and glazed white walls of Mirabel Lester's prison-house. She had grown in strength and courage, but not so her companion. Joan, who had started her weary vigil with an almost cheerful gaiety, had sunk deeper and deeper into depression as the hours progressed, and Mirabel woke to the sound of a woman's sobs, to find the girl sitting on the side of her bed, her head in her wet hands. "'I hate this place,' she sobbed. "'Why does he keep me here? "'God, if I thought the hound was double-crossing me, "'I'll go mad if they keep me here any longer. "'I will, Lester,' she screamed. "'I'll make some tea,' said Mirabel, "'getting out of bed and finding her slippers.' The girl sat throughout the operation huddled in a miserable heap, and by and by her whimpering got on Mirabel's nerves. "'I don't know why you should be wretched,' she said. "'They're not after your money.' "'You can laugh, and how you can, I don't know,' sobbed the girl, and she took the cup in her shaking hands. "'I know I'm a fool, but I've never been locked up like this before. I didn't dream he'd break his word. He swore he'd come yesterday. What time is it?' Six o'clock, said Mirabel. It might as well have been eight or midday, for all she knew to the contrary. This is a filthy place, said the hysterical girl. I think they're going to drown us all, or that thing will explode. She pointed to the green base box. I know it. I feel it in my blood. That beast, Gerther, is here somewhere. <laughs> He's like a slimy snake. Have you ever seen him? Gerther? You mean the man who danced with me? That's he. I keep telling you who he is, said Joan impatiently. I wish we could get out of here. She jumped up suddenly. Come and see if you can help me lift the trap. Mirabel knew it was useless before she set forth on the quest for freedom. Their united efforts failed to move the stone, and Joan was on the point of collapse when they came back to their sleeping room. I hope Gerther doesn't know that those men are friends of yours, she said, when she became calmer. You told me that yesterday. Would that make any difference? A whole lot, said Joan vehemently. He's got the blood of a fish, that man. There's nothing he wouldn't do. Monty ought to be flogged for leaving us here at his mercy. I'm not scared of Aubergeon. He's old. But the other fellow dopes and goes stark staring mad at times. Monty told me one night that he was, she choked, a killer. He said that these German criminals who kill people are never satisfied with one murder, they go on and on until they've got twenty or thirty. He says that the German prisons are filled with men who have the murder habit. 
He was probably trying to frighten you. Why should he? said the girl, with unreasonable anger. And leave him alone. Monty is the best in the world. I adore the ground he walks on. Very wisely, Mirabel did not attempt to traverse this view. It was only when her companion had these hysterical fits that fear was communicated to her. Her faith was completely and wholeheartedly centered on the three men, upon Gonzales. She wondered how old he was. Sometimes he looked quite young, and others an elderly man. It was difficult to remember his face. He owed so much to his expression, the smile in his eyes, to the strange boyish eagerness of gesture and action which accompanied his speech. She could not quite understand herself. Why was she always thinking of Gonzales, as a maid might think of a lover? She went red at the thought. He seemed so apart, so aloof from the ordinary influences of women. Suppose she had committed some great crime and had escaped the vigilance of the law. Would he hunt her down in the same remorseless, eager way, planning to cut off every avenue of her escape until he shepherded her into a prison cell? It was a horrible thought and she screwed up her eyes tight to blot out the mental picture she had made. It would have given her no ordinary satisfaction to have known how often Gonzales thought straight to the girl who had so strangely come into his life. He spent a portion of his time that morning in his bedroom, fixing to the wall a large railway map which took in the south of England and the greater part of the continent. A red ink line marked the route from London to Lisbon, and he was fixing a little green flag on the line just south of Paris, when Manfred strolled into the room and surveyed his work. The suit express is about there, he said, pointing to the last of the green flags, and I think our friend will have a fairly pleasant and uneventful journey as far as Valladolid, where I have arranged for Miguel Garcia, an old friend of mine, to pick him up and shadow him on the westward journey, unless we get the plane. I am expecting a wire any minute. By the way, the Dieppe police have arrested the gentleman who tried to bump him overboard in mid-channel. But the man who snatched at his portfolio at the Guerre Saint-Lazare is still at liberty. He must be getting quite used to it now, said Manfred coolly, and laughed to himself. Leon turned. He's a good fellow, he said with a quick earnestness. We couldn't have chosen a better man. The woman on the train, of course, was Gerther. He is the only criminal I've ever known who was really efficient at disguising himself. Manfred lit his pipe. He had lately taken to this form of smoking. This case grows more and more difficult every day. Do you realize that? Leon nodded. And more dangerous, he said. By the laws of average, Gerther should get one of us the next time he makes an attempt. Have you seen the papers? Manfred smiled. They're crying for Meadows' blood, poor fellow. Which shows the extraordinary inconsistency of the public. Meadows has only been in one snake case. They credit him with having fallen down on the lot. They seem to be in remarkable agreement that the snake deaths come into the category of willful murder, said Gonzales as they went down the stairs together. Meadows had been talking to the reporters. Indeed, that was his chief offense from the viewpoint of the official mind. For the first article in the code of every well-constituted policeman is, Thou shalt not communicate to the press. Leon strolled aimlessly about the room. He was wearing his chauffeur's uniform, and his hands were thrust into the breeches' pockets. Manfred, recognizing the symptoms, ran the bell for Poicart, and that quiet man came from the lower regions. "'Leon is going to be mysterious,' said Manfred dryly. "'I'm not really,' protested Leon, but he went red. 
It was one of his most charming peculiarities that he had never forgotten how to blush. I was merely going to suggest that there's a play running in London that we ought to see. I didn't know that The Ringer was a play until this morning, when I saw one of Aubergine's more genteel clerks go into the theatre, and being naturally of an inquisitive turn of mind, followed him. A play that interests Aubergine will interest me, and should interest you, George, he said severely, and certainly should interest Meadows. It is full of thrilling situations. It is about a criminal who escapes from Dartmoor and comes back to murder his betrayer. There is one scene which is played in the dark that ought to thrill you. I've been looking up the reviews of the dramatic critics, and as they are unanimous that it is not an artistic success and is, moreover, wildly improbable, and not to be worth seeing. I always choose an artistic success when I am suffering from insomnia, he added cruelly. Aubergine is entitled to his amusements, however vulgar they may be. But this play isn't vulgar, protested Leon, except in so far as it is popular. I found it most difficult to buy a seat. Even actors go to see the audience act. What seat did he buy? Box A, said Leon promptly, and paid for it with real money. It is the end box on the prompt side, and before you ask me whence I gain my amazing knowledge of theatrical technique, I will answer that even a child in arms knows that the prompt side is the left-hand side facing the audience. For tonight? Leon nodded. I have three stalls, he said, and produced them from his pocket. If you cannot go, will you give them to the cook? She looks like a woman who would enjoy a good cry over the sufferings of the tortured heroine. The seats are in the front row, which means that you can get in and out between the acts without walking on other people's knees. Must I go? asked Poichard plaintively. I do not like detective plays, and I hate mystery plays. I know who the real murderer is before the curtain has been up ten minutes, and that naturally spoils my evening. Could you not take a girl? asked Leon outrageously. Do you know any who would go? Why not take Aunt Alma? suggested Manfred, and Leon accepted the name joyously. Aunt Alma had come to town at the suggestion of the three, and had opened up the Doughty Court flat. And she really is a remarkable woman, and shows a steadiness and a courage in face of the terrible position of our poor little friend, which is altogether praiseworthy. I don't think Mirabel Lester is in any immediate danger. I think I've said that before. Aubergine merely wishes to keep her until the period of renewal has expired. How he will escape the consequences of imprisoning her, I cannot guess. He may not attempt to escape them, may accept the term of imprisonment which will certainly be handed out to him as part of the payment he must pay for his millions. Suppose he kills her, asked Poichard. For a second Leon's face twitched. He won't kill her, he said quietly. Why should he? We know that he has got her. The police know. She is a different proposition from Barberton. An unknown man killed nobody knew how in a public place. No, I don't think we need cross that bridge. Only... He rubbed his hands together irritably. However, we shall see. And in the meantime, I'm placing a lot of faith in Digby, a shrewd man with a sense of his previous shortcomings. You were wise there, George. He was looking at the street through the curtains. Tittlemouse is at his post, the faithful hound, he said, nodding towards the solitary taxicab that stood on the rank. I wonder whether he expects... Manfred saw a light creep into his eyes. Will you want me for the next two hours? Leon asked quickly, and was out of the room in a flash. 
Ten minutes later, Poichard and George were talking together when they heard the street door close and saw Leon stroll to the edge of the pavement and wave his umbrella. The taxicab driver was suddenly a thing of quivering excitement. He leaned down, cranked his engine, climbed back into his seat, and brought the car up quicker than any taxicab driver had ever moved before. New Scotland Yard, said Leon, and got into the machine. The cab passed through the forbidding gates of the yard and dropped him at the staff entrance. Wait here, said Leon, and the man shifted uncomfortably. I've got to be back at my garage, he began. I shall not be five minutes, said Leon. Meadows was in his room, fortunately. I want you to pull in this man and give him a dose of the third degree you keep in this country, said Leon. He carries a gun. I saw that when he had to get down to crank up his cab in Piccadilly Circus. The engine stopped. What do you want to know? All that there is to be known about Aubergine. I may have missed one or two things. I've seen him outside the house. Aubergine employs him for odd jobs, and occasionally he acts as the old man's chauffeur. In fact, he drove the machine the day Miss Lester lunched with Aubergine at the Ritz-Carlton. He may not have a cabin's license, and that will make it all the easier for you. A few minutes later, a very surprised and wrathful man was marched into Cannon Row and scientifically searched. Leon had been right about the revolver. It was produced and found to be loaded, and his excuse that he carried the weapon as a protection following upon a recent murder of a cab driver had not the backing of the necessary permit. In addition, and this was a more serious offence, he held no permit from Scotland Yard to ply for hire on the streets and his badge was the property of another man. Put him inside, said Meadows, and went back to report to the waiting Leon. You've hit the bullseye first time. I don't know whether he will be of any use to us, but I don't despise even the smallest fish. Whilst he was waiting, Leon had been engaged in some quick thinking. The man has been at Greenwich lately. One of my men saw him there twice, and I needn't say that he was driving over Jean. I'll talk to him later and telephone you, said Meadows, and Leon Gonzalez went back to Curzon Street. One large smile. You have merely exchanged a spy you know for a spy you don't know, said George Manfred, though I never question these freakish acts of yours, Leon. So often they have a trick of turning up trumps. By the way, the police are raiding the Gringo Club in the Victoria Dock Road tonight, and they may be able to pick up a few of Mr. Aubergine's young gentlemen who were certain to be regular users of the place. The telephone bell rang shrilly, and Leon took up the receiver and recognized Meadows' voice. I've got a queer story for you, said the inspector immediately. Did he talk? asked the interested Leon. After a while, we took a fingerprint impression and found that he was on the register. More than that, he is a ticket-of-leave man. As an ex-convict, we can send him back to finish his unexpired time. I promised to say a few words for him, and he spilt everything. The most interesting item is that Aubergine is planning to be married. To be married? Who is this? asked Manfred in surprise. Aubergine? Leon nodded. Who was the unfortunate lady? asked Leon. There was a pause, and then, Miss Lester. Manfred saw the face of his friend change color and guessed. Does he know when? asked Leon in a different voice. No, a license was issued over a week ago, which means that Aubergine can marry any morning he likes to bring along his bride. What's the idea, do you think? Drop in this evening and either I or George will tell you, said Leon. 
He put the telephone on the hook very carefully. That is a danger I had not foreseen, although it was obviously the only course Aubergine could take. If he marries her, she cannot be called in evidence against him. May I see the book, George? Manfred unlocked the wall safe and brought back a small ledger. Leon Gonzalez turned the pages thoughtfully. Dennis, he has done good work for us, hasn't he? he asked. Yes, he's a very reliable man. He owes us, amongst other things, his life. Do you remember his wife was... I remember. Leon scribbled the address of a man who had proved to be one of the most trustworthy of his agents. What are you going to do? asked Manfred. I've put Dennis on the doorstep of the Greenwich Registrar's office from nine o'clock in the morning until half-past three in the afternoon, and he will have instructions from me that the moment he sees Aubergine walk out of a cab with a lady, he must push him firmly but gently under the wheels of the cab and ask the driver politely to move up a yard. Leon, in his more extravagantly humorous moods, was very often in deadly earnest. End of chapter 26《Chapter Twenty Seven of the Three Just Men by Edgar Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mr. Newton's Dilemma. The most carefully guided streaks of luck may, in spite of all precautions, overflow into the wrong channel. And this had happened to Mr. Montague Newton, producing an evening that was financially disastrous and a night from which sleep was almost banished. He had had one of his little card parties but whether it was the absence of Joan and the inadequacy of her fluffy-haired substitute, or whether the wine had disagreed with one of the most promising victims, the result was the same. They had played Chemin de Fer and the gilded pigeon, whose feathers seemed already to be ornamenting the headdress of Monty Newton, had been successful, and when he should have been signing checks for large amounts, he was cashing his counters with a reluctant host. The night started wrong with Joan's substitute, whose name was Lisa. She had guided to the establishment, via an excellent dinner at Merrow's, the son of an African millionaire. Joan, of course, would have brought him alone, but Lisa, less experienced, had allowed a young-looking friend of the victim to attach himself to the party, and she had even expected praise for her perspicacity and enterprise in producing two birds for the stone which Mr. Newton so effectively wielded, instead of one. Monty did not resent the presence of the newcomer, and rather took the girl's view, until he learnt that Lisa's fine was not, as she had believed, an officer of the guards, but a sporting young lawyer with a large criminal practice, and one who had already, as a junior, conducted several prosecutions for the Crown. The moment his name was mentioned, Monty groaned in spirit. He was, moreover, painfully sober. This friend was not so favourably situated. That was the first of the awkward things to happen. The second was the bad temper of the player, who, when the bank was considerably over three thousand pounds, had first of all insisted upon the cards being reshuffled, and then had gone banco, the game being baccarat. Even this contretemps might have been overcome, but after he had expressed his willingness to give it, the card which Monty had so industriously palmed slipped from his hand to the table, and though the fact was unnoticed by the players, lawyer's attention being diverted at the moment, it was impossible to recover that very valuable piece of pasteboard. And Monty had done a silly thing. Instead of staging an artistic exhibition of annoyance at remarks which the millionaire's son had made, he decided to take a chance on the natural run of the cards. 
and he had lost. On top of that, the slightly inebriated player had decided that when a man had won a coup of three thousand pounds, it was time to stop playing. So Monty experienced the mortification of paying out money, and accompanying his visitor to the door with a smile that was so genial and so full of good fellowship that the young gentleman was compelled to apologize for his boorishness. "'Come along some other night and give me my revenge,' said Monty. "'You bet I will. I'm going to South Africa tomorrow, but I shall be back early next year, and I'll look you up.' Monty watched him going down the steps and hoped he would break his neck. He was worried about Joan, more worried than he had thought it was possible for him to be about so light a girl. She was necessary to him in many ways. Lisa was a bungling fool, he decided, though he sent her home without hurting her feelings. She was a useful girl in many ways, and nothing spoils a tout quicker than constant nagging. He felt very lonely in the house, and wandered from room to room, irritated with himself that the absence of this feather-brained girl, who had neither the education nor the breed of his own class, should make such a big difference. And it did, he had to admit as much to himself. He hated the thought of that underground room. He knew something of her temperament, and how soon her experience would get on her nerves. In many respects he wished he did not feel that way about her because she had a big shock coming, and it was probably because he foresaw this hurt that he was anxious to make the present as happy as he could for her. After he had done what he was to do, there was no reason in the world why they should be bad friends, and he would give her a big present. Girls of that class soon forget their miseries if the present is large enough. Thus he argued, tossing from side to side in his bed, and all the time his thoughts playing about that infernal cellar. What she must be feeling! He did not worry at all about Mirabelle, because, well, she was a principal in the case. To him, Joan was the real victim. Sleep did not come until daybreak, and he woke in his most irritable frame of mind. He had promised the girl he would call and see her, though he had privately arranged with Aubergine not to go to the house until the expiry of the five days. By lunchtime he could stand the worry no longer, and ordering his car drove to a point between New Cross and Bermondsey, walking on foot the remainder of the distance. Mr. Aubergine expected the visit. He had a shrewd knowledge of his confederate's mental outfit, and when he saw this well-dressed man picking a dainty way across the littered ground, he strolled out on the steps to meet him. "'It is curious you should have come,' he said. "'Why didn't you telephone?' growled Newton. This was his excuse for the visit. "'Because there are human machines at the end of every wire,' said Aubergine. "'If they were automatic and none could listen, but you and I, we would talk and talk and then talk. "'All day long would I speak with you and find it a pleasure.' but not with Miss This and Miss That saying, One moment, if you please, and saying to the Scotland Yard man, Now you cut in. Is Gerther back? Gerther is back, said the doctor soberly. Nothing happened to that bird? At least I saw nothing in the evening papers. He has gone to Lisbon, replied the doctor indifferently. Perhaps he will get there, perhaps he will not. What does it matter? I should like to see the letter, because it is data and Data has an irresistible charm for a poor old scientist. You will have a drink? Monty hesitated, as he always did when Aubergine offered him refreshment. He would never be sure with Aubergine. I'll have a whiskey, he said at last, a full bottle, one that hasn't been opened. I'll open it myself. The doctor chuckled unevenly. You do not trust, he said. I think you are wise. 
or who is there in this world of whom a man can say, He is my friend? To the very end of my life I will have confidence in him? Monty did not feel that the question called for an answer. He took the whiskey bottle to the light, examined the cork, and drove in the corkscrew. The soda water, that also must be poison, said Dr. Aubergine pleasantly. In any other time he would not have made that observation. That he said it at all betrayed a subtle but ominous change in their relationships. If Monty noticed this he did not say a word, but filled his glass and sat down on the sofa to drink. And all the time the doctor was watching him interestedly. Yes, Gertha is back. He failed, but you must excuse failure in a good man. The perfect agent has yet to be found, and the perfect principal also. The American, Washington, had left Paris when I last heard of him. He is to be congratulated. If I myself lived in Paris, I should always be leaving. It is a frivolous city. Monty lit a cigar and decided to arrive at the object of his visit by stages. For he had come to perform two important duties. He accounted as a duty a call upon Joan. No less was it a duty, and something of a relief also, to make his plan known to his partner. "'How are the girls?' he asked. "'They are very happy,' said Dr. Aubergine, who had not resumed his seat, but stood in an attitude somewhat reminiscent of Gerther, erect, staring, motionless. "'Always my guests are happy.' "'In that dog-hole?' said the other contemptuously. "'I don't want Joan to be here.' The Herr Doctor shrugged. "'Then take her away, my friend,' he said. "'Why should she stay, if you are unhappy because this woman is not with you?' She serves no purpose. Possibly she is fretting. By all means, I will bring her to you. He moved to the door. Wait a moment, said Monty. I'll see her later and take her out, perhaps, but I don't want her to be away permanently. Somebody ought to stay with that girl. Why? Am I not here? asked Aubergine blandly. You're here, and Gerther's here. Monty was looking out the window and did not meet the doctor's eyes. Especially Gerther. That's why I think that Mirabel Lester should have somebody to look after her. Has it ever struck you that the best way out of this little trouble is marriage? I have thought that, said the doctor. You also have thought it? This is wonderful. You are beginning to think. The change of tone was noticeable enough now. Monty snapped round at the man who had hitherto stood in apparent awe of him and his judgments. You can cut that sarcasm right out, Aubergine, he said and without preamble, I'm going to marry that girl. Aubergine said nothing to this. She's not engaged. She's got no love affairs at all. Joan told me, and Joan is a pretty shrewd girl. I don't know how I'm going to fix it, but I guess the best thing I can do is to pretend that I am a real friend and get her out of your cellar. She'll be so grateful that maybe she will agree to almost anything. Besides, I think I made an impression the first time I saw her and I've got a position to offer her, Aubergine, a house in the best part of London. My house, interrupted Aubergine's metallic voice. Your house? Well, our house, let us say. We're not going to quarrel about terms. I also have a position to offer her, and I do not offer her any other man's. Aubergine was looking at him wide-eyed, a comical figure. His elongated face seemed to stand out in the gloom like a pantomime mask. You? Monty could hardly believe his ears. I, Baron Eric Aubergine. A baron, are you? The room shook with Monty's laughter. Why, you damned old fool, you don't imagine she'd marry you, do you? Aubergine nodded. 
She would do any things what I tell her. In his agitation, his English was getting a little ragged. A girl may not like a man's, but she might hate something's worse. You understand? A woman says death is noting, but a woman is afeard of death, isn't it? You're crazy, said Monty scornfully. I am crazy, am I? And a damn fool also, yes? Yet I shall marry her. There was a dead silence, and then Aubergeon continued the conversation, but on a much calmer note. Perhaps I am what you call me, but it is not a thing worthy of two friends to quarrel. Tomorrow you shall come here, and we will discuss this matter like a business proposition, eh? Monty examined him as though he were a strange insect that had wandered into his ken. You're not a Swede, you're German, he said. That barren stuff gave you away. I am from the Baltic, but I have lived many years in Sweden, said Aubergeon shortly. I am not German, and I do not like them. More than this he would not say. Possibly he shared Gerther's repugnance towards his sometime neighbors. We shall not quarrel anyway, he continued. I am a fool, you are a fool, we are all fools. You wish to see your woman? I wish to see Joan, said Monty gruffly. I don't like that your woman line of yours. I will go get her. You wait. Again the long boots came from under the table, were dragged on to the doctor's awkward feet, and Monty watched him from the window as he crossed to the factory and disappeared. He was gone five minutes before he came out again, alone. Monty frowned. What was the reason for this? My friend, panted Aubergeon, to whom these exertions were becoming more and more irksome, it is not wise. I want to see her, began Monty. Gently, gently, you shall see her, but on the canal bank Gerther has also seen a stranger, who has been walking up and down, pretending to fish. Who can fish in a canal, I ask you? What has he to do with it? Would it be wise to bring her in daylight, I ask you again? Do not the men think that your that this girl is in Brussels? This had not occurred to Monty. I have an idea for you. It is a good idea. The brain of old fool Aubergeon sometimes works remarkably. This morning a friend sent me a ticket for a theatre. Now you shall take her tonight. There is always a little fog when the sun is setting. You can leave the house in a car. Presently I will send a man to attract this watcher's attention, and then I will bring her to the house and you can call for her. I will wait for her. Monty was dogged on this point. And wait he did, until an hour later a half-crazed girl came flying into the room and into his arms. Dr. Aubergeon witnessed the reunion unmoved. That is a pretty scene for me, he said, for one to be so soon married, and he left them alone. Monty, I can't possibly go back to that beastly place tonight. She'll have to stay by herself. And she's not a bad kid, Monty, but she doesn't know she's worth a lot of money. Have you been talking to her? he asked angrily. I told you. No, I've only just asked her a few questions. You can't be in a pokey hole like that, thrown together day and night without talking, can you? Monty, you're absolutely sure nothing can happen to her? Monty cleared his throat. The worst thing that can happen to her, he said, is to get married. She opened her eyes at this. Does somebody want to marry her? Aubergeon, he said. That old thing, she scoffed. Again he found a difficulty in speaking. I've been thinking it over, honey, he said. Marriage doesn't mean a whole lot to anybody. It'll mean a lot to me, she said quietly. Suppose I married her, he blurted. You? 
She stepped back from him in horror. Only just a... Well, this is the truth, Joan. It may be the only way to get her money. Now, you're in on this graft, and you know what you are to me. A marriage, a formal marriage for a year or two, and then a divorce, and we could go away together, man and wife. Is that what he meant? She jerked her head to the door. About marry so soon? He wants to marry her himself. Let him, she said viciously. Do you think I care about money? Isn't there any other way of getting it? He was silent. There were too many other ways of getting it for him to advance a direct negative. Oh, Monty, you're not going to do that. I don't know what I'm going to do yet, he said. But not that, she insisted, clinging to him by his coat. We'll talk about it tonight. The old man's got his tickets for the theater. We'll have a bit of dinner up west and go on, and it really doesn't matter if anybody sees us because they know very well you're not in Brussels. What is that queer scent you've got? Joan laughed, forgetting for the moment the serious problem which faced her. Jostics, she said. The place got so close and stuffy, and I found them in the pantry with the provisions. As a matter of fact, it was a silly thing to do because we had the place full of smoke. It's gone now, though. Monty, you do these crazy things when you're locked up, she said seriously. I don't think I can go back again. Go back tomorrow, he almost pleaded. It's only for two or three days, and it means a lot to me, especially now that Aubergine has ideas. You're not going to think any more about, about marrying her, are you? We'll talk about it tonight at dinner. I thought you'd like the idea of the graft, he added untruthfully. Joan had to return to her prison to collect some of her belongings. She found the girl lying on the bed, reading, and Mirabel greeted her with a smile. Well, has your term of imprisonment ended? Joan hesitated. Not exactly. Do you mind if I'm not here tonight? Mirabel shook her head. If the truth be told, she was glad to be alone. All that day she had been forced to listen to the plaints and weepings of this transfigured girl, and she felt that she could not well stand another twenty-four hours. You're sure you won't mind being alone? No, of course not. I shall miss you, added Mirabel, more in truth than in compliment. When will you return? The girl made a little grimace. Tomorrow. You don't want to come back, naturally. Have you succeeded in persuading your, your friend to let me out, too? Joan shook her head. He'll never do that, my dear, not till... She looked at the girl. You're not engaged, are you? I? No. Is that another story they've heard? Mirabel got up from the bed, laughing. An heiress and engaged? No, they don't say you were engaged. Joan hastened to correct the wrong impression. There was genuine admiration in her voice when she said, You're wonderful, kid. If I were in your shoes, I'd be quaking. You're just as cheerful as though you were going to the funeral of a rich aunt. She did not know how near to a breakdown her companion had been that day, and Mirabel, who felt stronger and saner now, had no desire to tell her. You're rather splendid, Joan nodded, and wish I had your pluck. And then impulsively she came forward and kissed the girl. Don't feel too sore at me, she said, and was gone before Mirabel could make a reply. The doctor was waiting for her in the factory. The spy has walked up to the canal bridge. We can go forward, he said. Besides, he has satisfaction out of this. He cannot see over high walls. What is this story about marrying Mirabel Lester? So he has told you? Also, did he tell you that, that he is going to marry her? 
Yes, and I'll tell you something, doctor. I'd rather he married her than you. So, said the doctor, I'd rather anybody else married her except that snake of yours. Aubergine looked round sharply. She had used the word quite innocently, without any thought of its application, and uttered an oh of dismay when she realized her mistake. I meant Gerther, she said. Well, I know you meant Gertha, young miss, he said stiffly. To get back to the house they had to make a half-circle of the factory and pass between the canal wall and the building itself. The direct route would have taken them into a deep hollow into which the debris of years had been thrown, and which now nature, in her kindness, had hidden under a green mantle of wild convolvulus. It was typical of the place that the only beautiful picture in the grounds was out of sight. They were just turning the corner of the factory when the doctor stopped and looked up at the high wall, which was protected by a cheval de frise of broken glass. All except in one spot, about two feet wide, where not only the glass but the mortar which held it in place had been chipped off. There were fragments of the glass, and on the inside of the wall, marks of some implement on the hard surface of the mortar. So, said the doctor. He was examining the scratches on the wall. Wait, he ordered, and hurried back into the factory, to return, carrying in each hand two large rusty contraptions which he put on the ground. One by one he forced open the jagged rusty teeth until they were wide apart and held by a spring catch. She had seen things like that in a museum. They were man-traps, relics of the barbarous days when trespass was not only a sin but a crime. He fixed the second of the traps on the path between the factory and the wall. Now we shall see, he said. Forward. Monty was waiting for her impatiently. The rolls had been turned out in her honor, and the sulky-looking driver was already in his place at the wheel. What is the matter with that chauffeur, she asked, as they bumped up the lane towards easier going. He looks so happy that I shouldn't be surprised to hear that his mother was hanged this morning. He soared with the old man, explained Monty. Aubergine has two drivers. They do a little looking round in the morning. The other fellow was supposed to come back to take over duty at three o'clock, and he hasn't turned up. He was the better driver of the two. The chauffeur was apparently seeking every pothole in the ground, and in the next five minutes she was alternately clutching the support of the arm strap and Monty. They were relieved when at last the car found the metal road and began its noiseless way towards the lights. And then her hand sought his, and for the moment this beautiful flower which had grown in such foul soil bloomed in the radiance of a love common to every woman, high and low, good and bad. End of chapter 27 Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.